Johnny Harris. Hi, everybody. My name's Johnny, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm glad to be here tonight, and uh, I'm glad to be sober. You know, when uh, if you're new here tonight, and uh, there probably are some new people here, I hope the word being sober doesn't offend you as bad as it offended me when I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, when I said in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on the fourth day of November 1959, and you talked to me about being sober, I didn't think Alcoholics Anonymous had anything to offer me. And the reason I didn't think that, because I was as physically sober when I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous as I am right now, as physically sober. But that had always seemed to be my problem. <laughs> if I could have stayed loaded forever, I'd have never came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I kept getting interrupted out there on my happy road of destiny by people in them little black and white cars. You know, I get a kick out of it. You know, there's a big deal going on about all this new stuff that goes on nowadays. They've got a big thing going down in my part of the world called intervention. I want you to know that the Los Angeles County Sheriff knew about intervention in 1940. <laughs> <laughs> And they still do a pretty good job of it. But I'm glad to be here, and I, uh, I, hope, I just hope that you hang on, and uh, I hope that you don't let anything that I say keep you from attending another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm by no wild stretch of the imagination a consultant, a counselor, or an authority on a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an example, good, bad, or indifferent, that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works. Nothing else. And that has been necessary for me to drink anything, swallow anything, smoke anything, or stick anything in my arm for 29 years, 10 months, and two or three days. But that hasn't got anything to do with me. I'm glad, uh, I'd like to thank Gordon, or whoever is responsible for me having the privilege of participating in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You see, I have always considered it a privilege to be allowed to come here and sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have always considered it a privilege that you let me do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have never been able to get it through my head, and I pray God that I never do, that I have some type of an inherited right to be here just because I don't drink alcohol. I don't have that right. It's a privilege for me to come and sit with you good people because I didn't do anything in my life prior to the fourth day of November, 1959, that would allow me the privilege of living the way I live today. Nothing. I have looked at it a long, long time, many times, and I would love to be able to say, oh, I did that, now I get this. Because if I could do that, I'd go back and do that again. I have to assume that my sobriety is a gift from God, and it's a great privilege for me to sit around you fantastic people, the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. You taught me to love you very deeply, probably more than anything else in the world. And that word itself, and the feelings I get when I'm with you, are things I did not bring to Alcoholics Anonymous with me. 
Now, I'm extremely pleased to be here tonight, fully clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> and I don't tell you that for any particular reason other than the fact that the longer I stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more necessary it becomes for me to remember from whence I came. And I never want to forget that a little over 30 years ago, I was crawling around on my knees in a cell in solitary confinement in a maximum security penitentiary barking at the moon. Because of a loving God has expressed himself through this program called Alcoholics Anonymous, it's no longer necessary for me to crawl around on my hands and knees like an animal. If I get nothing else out of this deal, I guess I could live with that for a long time. It makes me feel good. I'd like to be able to stand here tonight without any shadow of doubt in my mind and tell you that's where alcohol and drugs took me to. Oh, I'd like to be able to tell you that. But you see, that's where I took me to. The only thing that alcohol and drugs did in my life, they kept me alive long enough to find Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all. I'm as sure as I'm standing here without alcohol working in my life, I'd have blown my brains out before I was nine years old. I've always been an emotional misfit. I never belonged anywhere. I never liked anything. I didn't care about anything. I was bitter, and I was angry, and I was hostile, and I, I don't know where all that came from. I hadn't even had a drink when I felt that way. I just felt that way. I didn't like where I was, who I was, who I was around. I don't know where that came from. My family were all drunks. Everybody in my family drank. They made whiskey, they drank whiskey, and they sold whiskey. And they did all the things that that type of environment comes to. And they used to gather up on Saturdays, and they would drink each other's whiskey and steal each other's women and beat each other up. Oh, they had a hell of a time down there. And just, and I guess whoever survived was the king for the week. I don't know how they worked their deals. I, I really haven't understand it, but see, I understand that. I understand violence. I understand hostility so bad and bitter that you just want to lash out and kick something. It's almost like a spiritual experience when you put your foot in somebody's belly. Oh. <laughs> God, it gives me goosebumps to think about it right now. I just, you know, three or four faces flash in front of me. I was able to, see, what I was never able to understand, what I was never able to, con to grasp was the confusion in my life when I saw these same people on Wednesday who beat each other up and did all these things to each other on Saturdays would put their arms around one another on Wednesdays and say, we love one another because we're family. And I guess I said to myself, I don't know. If that's what love is, you can keep it. Because I never remember ever one time in my life ever uttering that word to any other human being who lived upon the face of this earth prior to coming into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That word was not in my vocabulary, and there's a very good reason for that. I'm a taker. I'm a taker of things. I'm a user of people, so therefore I'm a loser. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I'm self-serving, and i got an ego bigger in this whole room. Now, you don't need much more than that to have a bad start in life. <laughs> you throw a couple of a bad attitude like that, and, just, and see, people like me take her. See, I, I never, I hear people in alcoholics, and I'm talking about I drank up this, and I drank up that, and I, I didn't drink up nothing. I used up everything that came into my life, and everybody who came into my life. As long as you had something that I wanted, I used you. And when I got through with you, I just trashed you aside like so much trash went on about my business. And I never told you I loved you, because people like me don't tell people we love them, because there's a very good reason. If I told you I loved you, then I gave you an edge. And I didn't give edges. I kept edges. Because takers and users don't give edges. Takers and users have to have the edge. 
because if I don't have the edge, I can't use you. So therefore, I never said that. But you see, I knew there was something wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. There was some sort of a, a restlessness deep inside of my soul that I didn't understand. And I knew I had to have an answer. And I went places looking for answers. And whenever I got there, expecting the answer from people who were supposed to know the answer, I became away from there more confused than I was when I went there. You see, my grandmother lived till she was 90 years old and she never drank alcohol. My grandmother. My grandmother sit right in the middle of that sea of insanity and watch them crazy people kill one another. I remember she used to be in the kitchen cooking. They'd come flying through the kitchen with blood dropping off from them and Grandma just jumped back and say, oh, yes, Jesus loves you. You know, just, you know, they come flying through there. I just, I look at Granny and look at them and I thought, well, I, I'll go where Granny goes and do what Granny does. I'll be like Granny. But I never figured out one very simple little thing. Wherever I went, I went. I knew that would be a little deep for Reno, but try to hang on to it as much as you can. Because I don't get any deeper than that. If you want anything any more intellectual than that, you'll have to get Clancy here to talk to you for God's sake. I'm a simpleton. That's the deepest I got. See, I took that bad attitude with me. That rotten attitude, that bitterness, that hatefulness, that feeling of difference. And anxiety and all that stuff I took it with me to church and I sat there in the back row of church and waited for a guy to get up there with his long rows of authority and tell me why I felt that way that's what I wanted him to tell me I wanted him to tell me what to do about it more than anything in the world and he said I was supposed to love and honor and respect my parents so I was supposed to love my brothers and my sisters and I didn't I hated them I hated them for reasons I didn't even understand God I felt guilty about that we came Friday to death sitting in there. The people were going to find out I was hating what I was supposed to be loving. I didn't know what to do about that. I walked outside the door of the church that day. The old man standing there drunk and hung over. He tapped me on the head and said, Son, if you continue to go to church, you're going to grow up to be just like me. <laughs> I don't know what that did for my old man, but I haven't been back to church since. <laughs> and that got anything to do with church. It's got to do with my old man. I didn't like my old man. I hated my My old man was drunk. I did in a house where the two drunks working. That's frightening. Little kids lay in the house in the middle of the night and listen to the sounds of a drunken house. Screaming and yelling and cussing and flesh hitting flesh and breaking furniture and deathly silence. Every once in a while the old man come got me and started kicking me around. He did it to my brother, did it to me. That wasn't the most terrible time. The most frightening time is when they weren't there. And they were out there and I knew they were out there and I knew they were coming in. And I had to think. I had to lay there and cower up in that little corner behind my brother and think about the things that were going on. My uncles who lived in penitentiaries. My aunts who worked in those houses on the other side of the tracks. My old man who beat up my mother, my mother who beat up my old man. It dawned on me one night what the problem was. It was alcohol. They drank and they did those things. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be better than they are. But see, out of curiosity, one day I took a drink of alcohol. Just out of curiosity, I got into my old man's blue leg boots and took a drink of alcohol. And what happened to me that instant was that I sold myself into bondage. At that instant, not to alcohol, or not later to the drugs that came into my life, but to the feeling I got when I drank alcohol. See, that stuff that went down inside of me instilled the screaming madness. It took me from the black pit of nothingness. It stood me into the gray fringes of the business of living. It installed in me an arrogance. It's a damn you world, it's all right. I'm not good enough to be around the good people, but I'm too good to be around the bad people. It's okay right here. 
That's what alcohol did for me. And I'm going to tell you a strange secret. If alcohol still did that, I'd still drink it. But it don't do that anymore. Thank God. It couldn't work then, and I had to find another answer. Because I've always needed an answer. And for a long time there, alcohol was an answer. It's an answer to the alcoholic. Alcohol is not the problem. Alcohol is the answer. But you see, if you're alcoholic, sooner or later, your answer will turn into your problem and beat you to death. And that's what happened to me. And what happened to me when I drank happened to me every time I drank. There was no difference in the sequence. It was a sequence of events. I took a drink of alcohol, and three days later, they pulled me out from underneath the bridge and stood me in front of a judge and sent me to the Hutchinson State Reform School. Twenty years later, I took a drink of alcohol. They pulled me out of a car in Compton, stood me in front of a judge, and sent me to 20 years in the penitentiary. That's what happened to me when I drank. I got drunk and went places. <laughs> I just traveled around out there. I went from reform school to reform school to junior penitentiary to penitentiary to nut houses. <laughs> Now they call them treatment centers. <laughs> they treat them a little kinder than they used to treat me out there. They taught me things like better living through electricity. <laughs> oh. Wait till I get to the point where I died. You ought to get hilarious about that part. I remember I was on a furlough from a reform school and I, uh, oh, I don't know, I'm, 11 or 12 years old, somewhere around there. And sitting on the street corner with a gallon of Marka Petri red wine, which was my drink. I drank that whole gallon of wine I'm sober as I am right now. Scared to death. I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know what to do. My magic wasn't magic anymore. And a guy come along and tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you try these? And he gave me some pills. I don't remember saying to him, what are those? <laughs> do you think they'll bother me if I take them? I just... Thank God they weren't X-Lax. <laughs> well, I could be standing here tonight as an adult child of a laxative taker. <laughs> I would have been functional, but Mother was on the toilet all the time when I was little. <laughs> you know, as funny as that sounds, I hear stuff stupider than that now, Colic's not. Like that had something to do with me. I, I never knew that you could hate something and make you whole. I would have never had to come to you if that was the case. I came to you and did what you told me to do when I run out of excuses. People, places, and things to blame for my dilemma. Nobody's fault. It's my fault. I did it to me. Whatever happened to me in my life, I did it to me. Nobody else did it. I did it. I'm sitting on that same street corner on a furrow from another reform school not long after that. And I'm eating pills and drinking wine and nothing's working and a guy stuck a needle in my arm. And for the next 14 years of my life, I stuck needles in my arm and I out of institutions. That's what I do. I rip and I run and I use and I abuse and I destroy everything that comes in contact with me. I'm like a plague on life out there. If you come in contact with me, I'll destroy you. Because I'm a user, I'm a taker. So therefore, I'm a loser. I cared about nothing or nobody. I had no conscious concern for any other human being who lived upon the face of the earth. Only my own well-being, only my own comfort, my own, my own sickness, which is me, my selfishness and my self-centeredness. That's my sickness. 1951, I'm on my way to the penitentiary. My mother stood in the visiting room in the old Los Angeles County Jail and screamed at me through there I was a murderer. 
You see, my 17-year-old brother got into some of my poison and took an overdose of and died. I didn't know how to handle that very well. I handled like I handled most things. I got mad at it. Made it go away. Three days later, I stood handcuffed between two detectives out underneath a tree while they buried the only thing in life I cared anything about, my baby brother. With all the guilt and shame and humiliation and degradation of lifetime hanging around my shoulders, I liked to have cried, but I didn't know how. I didn't have the simple gift of tears that God gives every creature that's born on the face of this earth. And reason I didn't have them, but I didn't think they were necessary. I went on to the penitentiary and I stayed there four and a half years. I came out of there four and a half years sicker than I was when I went in there. Because my disease doesn't get any better just because I don't induce any chemicals into it. It gets worse. Never better. Always worse. So I came out of there sicker than I was when I went in there, trying to prove what a psychiatrist in San Quentin told me wasn't true. He said, Johnny, people like you don't change. He says, you're doomed to die in an institution. He took me down and showed me a little green room. He says, you're going to end up here, hot shot. And I told him, not me. I'm different. I'm different. The alcoholic theme song. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, folks. It's very frightening to me. The people in this room who are going to die drunk are going to die drunk with one thought in their head. My case is different. I may die drunk, but if I do, that will be my theme song. My case is different. I don't have to do this anymore. My case is different. I live with that idea in my head. My case is different. My case is different, and I damn near died. The only time that's ever stood me in good stead is when that psychiatrist in San Quentin wanted to give me a load of bottomy. My case was different. I come lost out of the institution, bounty term, I had that deal beaten six months later, I'm laying in a nut house kicking and screaming. And that's why I made my round to some of the better laughing academies in the country, interviewing psychiatrists. I sat there with my wraparound overcoat on. They talked to me about my mother, and I talked to them about their mother. <laughs> that's when they introduced me to better living through electricity. Well. Along about the third day after that treatment, I started to remember what they were doing to me. And I got angry. And they take me right back in front of that same guy again and I'd attack him. They take me back and give me another little jolt for three days. You ever try to attack a psychiatrist with a straight jacket on? Oh, it's real wonderful. <laughs> They just sit there with their pipe and smoke and say, my God. <laughs> I guess it would be a little strange. I guess some fool sitting on the other side of the desk and straight jacket going this way. And just... <laughs> you know, uh, what I pray God in my last interview with a psychiatrist happened to me in a federal government hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. Thirty-some years ago. It's what I pray to God at my last interview with one of them head doctors. I just, the monkey scared me to death. I remember moving into this man's office and sitting down across from his desk and looking up against the wall and looking at his degrees and his plaques and his diplomas. And I thought, maybe this guy knows something. You see, I still felt the same way that day as I felt sitting at my grandmother's knee at church when I was a child. I still had all the same things. Only now I've got a problem that's worse than all the rest of those problems put together. Now the things that I put in my system to make those problems go away no longer make them go away. Now I can't get rid of the nightmares. 
Now I can't get rid of the faces of the people I've harmed and thing. I'm the, now I'm in trouble. Now I'm in deep trouble. And the doctor looked at me and he said, Johnny, if you didn't drink these things and swallow these things and smoke these things and shoot these things, you wouldn't have any problems. You know, when I was a kid in the Hutchinson State Reform School, my counselor told me if I didn't drink, I'd be okay. When I was in Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles, my counselor told me if I didn't drink, I'd be okay. When I was in Whittier State Reform School, my counselor told me if I didn't drink these things and swallow these things and smoke these things and shoot these things, I'd be okay. When I was pressed in school for boys, they told me that. When I was at San Quentin, my psychiatrist told me that. When I was in Folsom, they told me that. And now my long last journey when all things I sit across to this death, you know what none of them monkeys ever took into consideration? Every time they told me that, I was as physically sober as I am right now. Every time. How many times I wanted to scream out, I'm good God, doctor, don't you understand? Because they don't understand. Don't you understand? Take, it, take this madness from inside of me, I wouldn't put those other things in me. Make it 1950 again. Please, wipe out that nightmare. I won't have to do this anymore. But I didn't know that. I had no way of knowing that. And so I had to go out there and live for a couple more years in the land of the living dead. And a little over 31 years ago, they tied me down to bed in the old Los Angeles County Jail, more dead than alive. I weighed 128 pounds and I was yellow. There was a medical doctor telling me to put in my bed telling me I was going to die. I'd had two years of doing to me exactly what I wanted to do to me anytime I wanted to do to it, and that's what I did to me. That's what I did to me. That's my own self-will, my own self-centered. That's what happens to me, my own best judgment. That's what happens to me when I run my life. That's what I did for my life, running to myself. That's me. I lay on that deathbed, that doctor said, son, you're gonna die, and nothing I can do for you, and I said, okay, okay. And I laid there all day and all night, and he come dancing back into my room the next morning, and he said, son, you're gonna die, and nothing I can do for you. And the third day he came into my room, I had a terror grip me that I've never known before since in my entire lifetime. The idea came to me I was going to live and not die. I was going to get up out of that bed and go to the penitentiary and come back out and start that rat race all over again, and I didn't want to do that. I laid there for 18 days and 18 nights. I didn't eat, sleep, drink, or do anything. I just laid there. And one night, because I knew nothing better to do, I screamed out the only prayer I'd ever said in my life. I said, oh, God, help me. I thought for a long, long time nothing had happened. There was no blinding flashes of light. Nobody come running down the hall with a dozen donuts saying we got an AA meeting down there. And I, I just went to sleep for a little while. I don't know how many of you ever kicked a two-year heroin habit, but that's what I was doing. That's the first time I've been asleep in a long, long time. I'll tell you how sick I was. Two weeks later, two short weeks later, I'm up running around a jail looking for some more of the poison putting me back in the bed I'd just gotten off of. And there's a very good reason for that, because in the back of my mind, where my problem seemed to be centered, was the knowledge that once upon a time when I could not stand it any longer, I could ingest something into my system and it was okay right now. And right now is all I ever want. Right now. And even though it wasn't working anymore, and I knew it wasn't working anymore, I knew that it would if I could just find the right combination because it's the only thing that had ever worked. Good God, it's got to work again. So I got loaded again. And I stood in front of a judge who was sentenced to 20 years in the penitentiary. I mean, anything to me, that's the way I lived. But what he said to me next, he called me a blood-sucking parasite in society. 
He said, I had no right being around decent people. He told a woman who was sitting in the courtroom who was carrying my child, if she cared anything at all about her child, that I'd never be allowed to lay eyes on it. And what that man said that day, he put into words what I had always known, what I was. See, I have never been able to hide me from me. I have never been able to lie to me about me. I have always known what kind of a scum I was. That's why I tried so desperately to get rid of me. That's why it was so necessary for me to block off me from you. I always knew I was a taker. I have a long list of faces of the things and people that I've destroyed through my selfishness and my self-centeredness, trying to make me feel better at the expense of some other human being. I knew that. That's the first time I'd ever heard it. And the evidence was so damning that my brain literally exploded. And for the next nine months of my life, I crawled around in a cell in solitary confinement, barking at the moon, drifting in and out of total insanity. Coming to every once in a while, scraping my food off the wall, wondering how I got it up there, when I threw it in an insane rage. And on the first Sunday in November 1959, I wandered into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. See, I don't take any credit for coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do I take any credit for staying here from that day to this day. If I'd known where I was coming, I wouldn't even have come. I was an alcoholic. The reason I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because the institution I was in let women come in there. I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous almost 30 years ago to smell perfume. And I've been honking and sniffing around her ever since. <laughs> you got you to be careful to get the sickles in here, I'll tell you that. I remember I'm, I moved in and sit down in the back row and what I lovingly like to call my throne of contempt. I had my coat collar up and my shades on because I was cool. If I'd have been any cooler when I got here, I'd have froze to death, for God's sake. Remember looking up on the backboard, I saw two big gates, and I thought to myself, my God, I've wandered into an anti-aircraft brigade. I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I said to this clown sitting next to me, what is this? He said, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I sunk down in my seat. Gangsters weren't supposed to be hanging out with them winos. Could have been Gangsters Anonymous or Over-Hip Anonymous or... How about Dope Fiends Anonymous? Ain't that macho? I mean, that's something you get your teeth into, you know what I mean? Makes addicts seem kind of candy-ass to me. I don't know about you, but you get your teeth into that one. Yeah. I hang into that hang in there, baby. I thought, well, I'll wait for these women to get up and tell their racist stories. Now, you got to remember something. So when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there weren't very many young, pretty girls in Alcoholics Anonymous. There just wasn't. These old gals got up to talk, and they said they drank for a long time. Hell, you could look at them and know they'd been somewhere for a long time. Yeah, they said, I used to drink. I thought, I'll bet you did. Bad, too. I know. You can tell. I mean, I mean, if you want to know anything, go to the back row and ask. They know everything, but they don't know how to stay sober back then. That's where I hung out, with my air of contempt and my arrogance. But the people of Alcoholics Anonymous hooked me that evening because there was something about them I didn't understand. I couldn't understand why they drive 185 miles up that old back road to talk to a bunch of people who didn't want to listen to them for nothing. I couldn't understand that. It was beyond my description. It was beyond my thought capabilities to understand that. And they run it to talk about God. I ran out of the room. God was the reason I was. It was not my fault. 
I'd run out of people, places, things, circumstances, and conditions to blame for my dilemma, but I still had a kicker. See, people like me, the thing that keeps them from going totally insane is my ability to blame somebody other than me for my own actions. And when I run out of people, places, things, circumstances, and conditions, I can blame God for it. He don't talk back. It's God's fault. Listen sometimes. You hear sometimes. I hear nay all the time. Well, guess if God wants me to have a job, he'll shoot it down here to the club. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you get hungry, go lock yourself up in a closet and pray for a hot dog. <laughs> if God squirts you one through the keyhole, you call me. I've been looking for a deal like that all my life. I tell you, I, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a very spiritual or religious man. But I tell you, I've learned one very simple little thing about God since I've been around here. It's helped me very well. I've learned that my God will not do anything for me that I can do for myself. There's only been one simple little thing in my life I have never been able to do. One thing only. I couldn't do it before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't been able to do it since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. I won't be able to do it from this day forward. Of myself and by myself, I cannot keep from taking a drink of alcohol. I can't do that. And yet, for over 29 years and 10 months, I haven't had a drink of alcohol or a mood-changing altering chemical in my system whatsoever. And what blows my mind even more than that is I haven't had a conscious thought or a conscious desire to put any of that stuff in my system from the first moment I laid eyes on you to this instant. And that doesn't make me wonderful or special. My God just seemed to understand that anybody as sick as I am cannot harbor a thought in his head for over 30 seconds without putting it into action. I'm just that way. My problem lays between my ears. It doesn't lay anywhere else. I don't have any desire to take a drink. I don't have any craving for alcohol. Matter of fact, I don't want one. A lot of people that I know that I sponsor, they didn't want one either until they took it. The alcoholics like me, there comes a time when alcoholics like me have to drink. They have to drink to preserve their sanity. Alcoholics like me blow their brains out cold sober. Cold sober. That's when alcoholics commit suicide. If they do a drinking, it's accidental. <laughs> alcoholics. Now, see, I, I don't know about anything else but alcoholics, folks. I'm not talking about drinkers or heavy drinkers or non-drinkers or non-alcoholics. I only know about alcoholics because I are one. And I discovered that here. I kept coming back to your meetings. You kept talking about God. I kept leaving. One day I sit in the back row. I don't remember my attitude being any different than it is. I don't remember anything different about that day at all, except I do know that that's the day I had lived my entire lifetime for. That every rotten thing I'd ever done had driven me right up to the very gates of hell. See, I didn't even know I was in hell. I had no way of knowing when I woke up that morning that I was going to go sit in a room and some man was going to put the key into the gates of hell and let me out of there. I didn't know that. If I'd have had that knowledge, I'd have never came to an AA meeting. I wasn't conditioned to go to AA meetings. I was conditioned to go to doctors and teachers and preachers and wardens and psychiatrists and psychologists and all those people who have been giving me all that bum information all these years. I was conditioned to go to drunks, but I didn't know that that day. So I went and sat in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a little guy that I knew did 23 frat years in the penitentiary. 
A little guy by the name of Les Hamlin is dead now. Stood at a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous and told me that something that all those educated people didn't know. He never even had a sixth grade education. He told me I didn't have to live that way anymore if I didn't want to. He says, you don't have to do it like this no more, and nobody's ever told me that. They told me all my life, don't drink, swallow, smoke, and shoot, but they never told me how to live without doing it. How do you live in a world that you don't understand, that you don't belong in, that wants no part of you that you don't want any part of? And the only thing that makes it bearable for just an instant is something that you put into your system. After being, I went up to him, I said, how do you learn how to live, Wes? He told me about a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, you go get that book, Johnny. I'll go and pray that you find some part of you in it. I guess he prayed real hard, that little fella. I've been a student of the book Alcoholics Anonymous from that day to this day. And the only thing I've ever found in that book is me. I haven't looked for anything else. I'm not looking for a way to sober up the world or cure all of society's ills. I'm looking for a way to live peacefully and comfortably and joyously with me and the love of God that made me. There is a strange phenomenon that takes place in my life. It seems like to me that the closer I adhere to the principles that are written in that book, and the more willing I become to share that knowledge in this fellowship, just for the sheer joy of doing it, the more peaceful and the more comfortable and the more joyous I live with me and the loving God that made me. But I had a lot of trouble when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was confused. I was confused here more than I'd ever been anywhere. I sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard people get at podium like this and say, I used to drink. Now I don't drink anymore, and everything is wonderful. I said, I'm not alcoholic, man. I'm not drinking either. I'm as sober as you are, Buster, and I'm crazy. So I'm not alcoholic. Simple, isn't it? Logical. Alcoholics are logic. The keen alcoholic mind. Have you ever stopped to think about the only people who talk about the keen alcoholic mind are the alcoholics? You don't hear non-alcoholics talking about the keen alcoholic mind. Oh, yeah, the keen alcoholic mind came in last night and peed in the linen closet. Yeah. <laughs> I said in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard people get up at podiums like this and say, you got to get active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got up running around like a chicken with my head cut off. I picked up ashtrays and poured coffee and smiled at people. Well, it's wonderful here in A and A. Thirty days ago I was just dead. But I wandered through them wonderful doors and got around you magnificent people and God has blessed me and you newcomers keep coming back. It bless you too. I went back and set an inventory point and died. I was doing everything they told me to do and I'm crazy. I don't understand. I said to myself, see I'm not alcoholic. If I was alcoholic, all I would have to do is not drink and pick up these damned ashtrays and I'd be okay. I didn't know any better. And every time I talked to one of these people, they'd say, it's in the book. What's in the book? Oh, it's there. Mac was talking about it this afternoon. I'm going to tell you what it is so it doesn't have to confuse you. What it is, it's in that book, at least in the first 164 pages that I've tried to incorporate in my life one day at a time. What it is, is what I thought it was, but it really wasn't.
when I took my first drink. What it is, is what I thought it was, but it really wasn't when I swallowed my first pill. What it is, what it really isn't, but what I thought it was when I took my first fix. What it is, is that peace of my life that I seemingly was born without. It was the end of my search. My search was over with. When I discovered what it was that was in that book, I no longer needed to look anywhere else. I never needed to find any other answer. And I found it the day I sat in a room with a man in the penitentiary and did what our program of recovery called a fifth step. I sit in this man's office for three and a half hours and tell him about every rotten, filthy, corruptful thing I've ever done in my life. And somewhere during that three and a half period, hour period of time, I heard myself say to him that I was an alcoholic. And from way down deep inside of me, there came a freedom that I carry with me to this very instant. See, I know, as I stand here before you, I know what's wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic. I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. That's what I have. It's a killer. It's killed more people than all the combined wars and diseases and plagues in the history of man. It destroyed more nations and more people than anything. And that's what I have. I have this killer illness that's getting worse as I stand here before you tonight. That's what I have. See, I'm not an alcoholic and anything. When I was an alcoholic and something, I couldn't have your program. Because, see, when I was an alcoholic and, I separated me from you. See, I, I was different. And I didn't have to do what you did. You see, when I became an alcoholic, I had to do what you do. There ain't no way to beat that rat. I had to do what the 100 people who wrote that book of experiences did. They were alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic, I have to do it. If I'm an alcoholic and I have to do something, stay sober, so do you. But by the same token, if you're an alcoholic and you have to do something to stay sober, so do I. See, that, that makes me just like you. No better than, no worse than, just like you. I'm an alcoholic. And from that moment to this moment, I have never had any doubts about where I should be or what I should do. From that moment of discovery, it's become my great pleasure to do anything that you've asked me to do. I sat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in that penitentiary for a year and a half, and I had one dream that one day you would let me come and sit with you. I said to myself, sitting in that penitentiary, if they allow me to come and sit in their meetings, I'll do anything they ask me to do. And when my telephone rings at my house, my answer is this, if the date's open, it belongs to you. If the date's open, it belongs to you. That makes my life so simple. It takes care of birthdays, holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas. It takes care of all that nonsense. I don't have to stop and look and make any conditions on whether I'll come and share me with you or not if you want me. Because I belong to you. You see, you, people of Alcoholics Anonymous, you came to me when nobody else would. You came and drugged me off the scrap heap of life when everybody else said, get out. I have never forgotten that. I have never forgotten who wanted me when nobody else did. 
but you see from the time i embraced your program and became an alcoholic things have started to happen to me when i first came to alcoholics anonymous my vocabulary consisted of about four four letter words mother ran all around in there somewhere then <laughs> i had some people who sent me in a room and word by word sentence by sentence paragraph by paragraph fed me the english language they told me things like cussing was a crutch for conversational cripples and then they backed it up when i rained my wrath on them and i don't take directions and correction very easy i attack but i knew they loved me because when my madness and my insanity subsided we started all over again and anything they ever asked me they'd say to me johnny what about that program you love called alcoholics anonymous and say oh yeah what about those people you know yeah you know on the fourth day of june 1961 they opened up the doors to penitentiary and let me out turned me loose in a world i didn't know anything about the only thing i was armed with was a program of recovery called alcoholics anonymous the only thing i wanted to do was go set meetings with you it's all i'd ever lived for it's all i wanted to do i went home to see my mother she fell off step blind drunk I picked her up and put her on the couch and said, Mom, I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, fine, I think you should. <laughs> I've learned a tremendous lesson from my little mother. I learned that I do not have the power to get anybody sober. I don't have the power to get them drunk either. I don't even have any power to keep me sober. Where would I get any power? I don't have any power. I'm powerless. The book Alcoholics Anonymous tells me I only have a daily reprieve. That means I got it right now. That means I get to stay sober today for what I do today. Too many people who get a few years around here get to think they get to stay sober because they've been sober. Well, that's a fool paradise. I tell you, you ever take a sick thought and put it in a sick mind, you think you're going to get a well answer? <laughs> I get to stay sober not what I did 20 years ago. Not for the 12-step call or the institution I went to or the people I sponsored 20 years ago. I get to stay sober because I came to Reno this weekend because I was asked to. That's why I get to stay sober, because I get to sit around in meetings and hear you share you with me. What I've been doing all weekend, just sitting around letting you share you with me, feeling good, seeing people I sponsor, people I love, old friends, new friends, that's what I get here. I get to do that because I get to stay sober today. When I get back home tomorrow, I get to stay sober tomorrow because I'll answer some telephones from them people. <laughs> that I sponsored home. That's it. It's a daily thing. I had a tough time with that because I didn't know how to do nothing. I had a sponsor who must have went to school for hard-hearted sponsors. His name was Norm Alpey. He's dead now, but God, Norm Alpey was. Norm Alpey was the greatest member of Alcoholics Anonymous I've ever known. He was the only member of Alcoholics Anonymous I've ever known in my life who never sold out who never compromised his position or justified his principles, he walked right down the middle of the road. And I had him for 22 years before he died, dropped dead one day. And I never loved him as much alive as I loved him after he was dead. I'm sorry to tell you that. I always loved him, but I don't think I appreciated him as much as I do today. Oh, I have a sponsor today. I've had a sponsor since year i have to have a sponsor i'm a very sick man my sponsor norm made me go to work 
I said, what do you want me to do? He said, work. I said, what do you mean? He said, W-O-R-K, work. I wanted a position. I didn't know how to do anything, but I was good at that. You ever read the one ad, look for old wore-out domino players? My sponsor made me put on my resume, star second baseman for the San Quentin Pirates for two years. Try that on your resume, hot shot, he said. Finally got me a job in the oil fields. By this time, my wife had come back with that little girl I was never supposed to see. And she's going to have another one. And so I had to find out what people do when they get paid. I didn't know. So I used to go stand off in the markets and watch them. You ever watch what they do? They come in there and they got this little kid with them and they throw them in them baskets backwards and run them down the aisle. They throw stuff in there and they'll, you know, you know, you know kids there, packages and does all this stuff and you go up in front of this cash register and he rings it up and the guy is standing there with culture, shocked. Jesus, we don't need all that, you know. So I finally got a paycheck. Finally got my first paycheck and I ran home and I said, let's go to the market. She says, why? I said, that's what they do. She said, who? And I said, them. Have you ever tried to explain them to them? Huh? If somebody comes up here tonight and wants to know who they are, send them to Al-Anon. That's who they are. They're really the reason we're in here, if you want to know the truth. She said, we don't need anything. I said, I don't care. We're going to the market. I guess I had one of them looks in my eyes. You know how newcomers got these spiritual looks in their eyes like, we're going to the market, you bitch, or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> we went to the market. I put the kid in the basket backwards and pushed her down the aisles, up and down the aisles. She threw the groceries in there. I had shock at the cash register. Like, uh -huh. We went home, I asked for some money to get, some, get a haircut and somebody stole her purse. You want to hear somebody scream? Listen to the thief when they get stolen from them. Well, I ranted and raved and jumped and hollered, and I'll tell you something, if I could have found that guy, you'd have another talker here tonight. I'd be up there in Folsom telling you that AA don't work. You always know it's losers say AA don't work. AA don't work. Yes, it does. Works fine. Works fine. You know my sponsor wouldn't let me have a car. He made me ride my little girl's bicycle right through my old neighborhood to an AA meeting. Now you got to understand, this is a big-time dope dealer who used to run that neighborhood, driving by his old customers on a little girl's bicycle on the way to an A and A meeting, and their comments were like. Oh, that AA really does work, doesn't it, John? So I finally got enough money to buy a car. So I said, Norm? He said, yes. And I said, I'm going to buy a car. He said, you got the money for a car? I said, yes. Did you have a driver's license? And I said, no. He said, then you don't get a car. You can't drive a car without a driver's license. What do you mean I can't drive a car? I've been driving a car since 1948 without a driver's license. I don't know. I don't get one until 2060 sometime. I've been banned for life for driving a car. 
He said, then you won't drive a car as long as you're alive. I said, why? And he said, I don't want people like you out there running around with people like me out there. I'm a citizen. <laughs> so finally, through a kind parole officer, and because I passed a bunch of tests, they gave me a probationary license. So I called him up, and I said, I'm going to get a car now. He said, you got the money for a car? And I said, yes. He said, you got a driver's license? I said, yes. He said, you got money for insurance? <laughs> no, and you can't have a car then. <laughs> See how cruel he was? Very simple. He didn't want me out there endangering the lives of decent citizens. I didn't have a right to drive a car just because I wasn't drinking. I don't know what there is about sick people who think they have a right for anything. Sick people, like me, who destroyed and used up everything in their life think I have a right to anything. Everything I have is a privilege. If I, when I have rights, I have to defend them. I defend them to the death. <laughs> I don't have any rights. My sponsor taught me that. He taught me to love you. He taught me to respect you. I tell you, I did. He did very cruel, cruel things to me. I didn't know he was doing it. It was very cruel. I used to go to meetings with Norman. I'd sit in meetings with Norman. I'd start to talk to him while the meeting was going. He'd say to me, shut up. He'd yell at me right across the table. Embarrass me in front of all my friends. <laughs> when he'd get up and go to the bathroom, he'd say, sit still. One night I was at a meeting and Chuck was talking, and sometimes Chuck talked a long time. I had to go to the bathroom. I said, Norm? He said, shut up. I said, Norm, I have to go to the bathroom. He said, shut up and sit still. I said, I may pee my pants. He said, so what? <laughs> One night, it was a hot July night. Norm was going to pick me up and take me to a meeting, and I got all dressed up in my new tank top and my shorts. And my thongs, and I stood on the corner and waited for my sponsor to come and pick me up. He drove up and looked at me and drove off. <laughs> you think it's funny? I damn, I was ready to kill. I tell you that. I couldn't wait till he got home at eleven o'clock that night. His phone rang. Why did you do that to me? I said, man, what's wrong? Are you trying to kill me? What's wrong? Why do you think that me? He said, I'm going to ask you a question. I said, what? He said, would you go to church dressed like that? I said, no, I wouldn't. He said, you ain't going to my church dressed like that either. Hmm. You see, uh, I guess he's just trying to teach me to uh, show a little respect for this thing that gave me life. That's all. But I guess if Alcoholics Anonymous never gave you anything, you would have to respect it. I guess if the people of Alcoholics Anonymous didn't mean anything to you, you wouldn't be worried about disturbing them during the meeting. I guess that you wouldn't have to worry. You could stumble over them and get up and go to the bathroom and get coffee and talk and visit. I guess if, it didn't, if Alcoholics Anonymous never gave anything, I guess it wouldn't be, if you're only in here for the short haul, I guess it wouldn't be necessary for you to learn everything here. I asked Norm about that one night on the way home from a meeting. I said, Norm, uh, this was years later. I said, you know, when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I used to yell at me. I used to make me sit still in the meetings. He said, yes. I said, why? 
I mean, I, I said, it's only a call of nature to have to go to the bathroom, Norm. I said, I, you know, I'd be real careful and not stumble. Someone asked you a question, Johnny. She said, life to the alcoholic is a matter of seconds and inches. Seconds and inches. And I said, yeah, I understand. I've heard you say that many times. Hey, supposing, Johnny, just supposing. What happened to you? What turned you around now, Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, well, I was sitting in the penitentiary, and Les told me I didn't have to live that way anymore. He said, supposing at that instant some inconsiderate, selfish ass had stumbled across you on his way to the coffee pot or to a dressing, you'd miss that. I said, well, I'd be dead now. He said, now you understand. That's the type of responsibility that you carry in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, Johnny. And because you carry in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, people sitting in this room, alcoholics, are going to die if they don't hear what they have to hear. And I don't ever know what it is, and neither do you. But I wouldn't want to be guilty of that. And you see, there's another thing that I've learned since I've been here. I, want to, I don't want to miss anything here. I want to sit and listen while they're reading the fifth chapter. I study the tradition. I know about the concepts. I can't learn enough about this thing that gave me life. I have to know about it. Because I want it to be here if my great-great-great-grandchildren ever have to come here. I want to know about it. I want Alcoholics Anonymous to be here for them just exactly the way it was for me when I got here. And if I wanted to change, I would be saying to you that Alcoholics Anonymous never done anything for me. Because I hear people from podiums like this say things like, Alcoholics Anonymous is not enough. I can only tell you that anybody who would ever stand at a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous and tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous is not enough has never tried Alcoholics Anonymous. Not the way I've tried Alcoholics Anonymous. Not the way I see the people who went before me the Chuck Chamberlains and the Norm Alpies and the Clancy Emmons and those type of people. Seemingly, Alcoholics Anonymous has been enough for them. They never went anywhere else. I stand here before you tonight. I've been diagnosed by some of the leading psychiatrists in the world as criminally insane. That I am never supposed to be able to live outside of an institution without some type of medication in my system. I can't do that. And so I think maybe I might be able to speak for the mentally disturbed. And yet I have never been anywhere else but Alcoholics Anonymous. I have never embraced any other authority, any other thing, but Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm afraid that if I was to go out and lend my time to anything else, it would water down Alcoholics Anonymous. If all these people who go searching other things would put as much time in here, as they do searching. When you go searching, it means you ain't found. That's all. And if you ain't found what's here, it's because you ain't looked. Chuck used to say, if you could see what it was, it would blind just like the sun. I never will forget one time. I went down to see him. I, I was like his kid. I spent 25 years with him. He enraptured me, this old man. I was hypnotized by him. I had a problem. I don't know what the problem was, but it was very deep at that time. And I drove all the way down to Laguna, and I'm sitting, he's walking along the beach, and I said to him, Papa, I've got to talk to you about this problem. He said, okay, talk to him. We talked and talked and talked, and he looked at me, and he said, look out there. I looked out there, and it was the ocean. I said, okay, I'm looking. He said, how far can you see? And I said, how the hell do I know how far I can see? He said, seven miles. The old fool's been in the sun too long, and he's blew it. 
seven miles. I said, I learned a lesson in geography. I drove all the way down here, and he told me about geography. About an hour later, we're sitting up at his house up on the hill, and we're looking out the window, and he's got a cup of coffee, and he's out of the sun now, so I thought, now I'll ask him again. So I laid this tremendous problem on him again, whatever it was. He said to me, look out there. I looked out there. He said, how far can you see? And I said, seven miles. He said, no, you don't understand, do you? And I said, seven miles. He said, no, from that point to that point is 120 miles. Huh. He said, you still don't understand, do you? And I said, no. He says, the higher you go, the further you see. And the further you see, the more there is to see. And it's unending, on and on and on. Such be it in the mind of my Father God and all things that he created for his children. I can't stand here and tell you that every meal I've eaten since I've been an alcoholic and I was a banquet. Have I been through all kinds of things? My first wife committed suicide. I'm a young daughter on drugs. I guess she's off of now. My mother never quit drinking. I've been through business failures. I've been through a divorce, a very painful divorce after a long period of time. There are all kinds of problems. I've had everybody who was near and dear. I had to sit and watch that old man that I loved like a father. It was the only father I'd watch him die. I sit there for a year and tried to rock him to sleep like he rocked me to sleep and watched him die. I loved him to pieces. Watch this magnificent man die from this disease, not alcoholism. I loved him more than anything I've ever known because I saw I was a human being. My sponsor today tells me that the best we ever get here is human beings. That's the best we ever get. That means we're fallible and we all have feet of clay, I suppose. I'll tell you a little story. One night I was coming home from a meeting with Chuck and I I snuck something off a table to read to him because I needed to say something to him because I felt like such a dork. And I didn't know what to say to him. I snuck this thing off and I said, I want to read you this, Papa. And he said, what is it? And I started to read this thing, why we were chosen. He said, hold it. I don't want you to read that to me. I said, why not? He said, well, in the first place, we're not chosen. I said, what? He said, no, we're not chosen. We're not chosen. We're not special. He said, Johnny, we're all God's kids. All of us are. If I am, you are. And if you are, I am. If you ain't, I ain't. If I ain't, you ain't. We're just in a lot of trouble. He said, they make the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. I said, no. Oh. Then I said to him, then how come I'm sober? I know people who are far better people than I'll ever be who aren't sober. My baby daughter is a far better person than I'll ever be. My mother is a far better person than I'll ever be, and yet they can't stay sober. Why is that? He said, well, you've come to understand you're one of God's children, and you act like it. And so therefore, he treats you like one of his children. He said, they don't know. They don't know that they're one of God's children, and they don't know how to act like one of God's children. And so it becomes your business and your only business to stay sober and carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers, and you never know who's suffering. You never know who's suffering. I don't. I just go. I just go when I'm asked, and I make no conditions on it. The date's open. It belongs to you. As long as you want me, I'm coming. Because I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love you. It's given me everything. I don't know anybody. You know, 
I stand here before you tonight. I don't know anybody in the world I trade places with. I'm really, I, I can't think of a single thing in this world right now that I actually want that I don't already have. I live where I want. I ain't. If I ain't, you ain't. We're just in a lot of trouble. He said they make the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. I said, no. Then I said to him, then how come I'm sober? I know people who are far better people than I'll ever be who aren't sober. My baby daughter is a far better person than I'll ever be. My mother is a far better person than I'll ever be, and yet they can't stay sober. Why is that? He said, well, You've come to understand you're one of God's children, and you act like it. And so therefore, he treats you like one of his children. He says, they don't know. They don't know that they're one of God's children, and they don't know how to act like one of God's children. And so it becomes your business, and your only business, to stay sober and carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers, and you never know who's suffering. You never know who's suffering. I don't. I just go. I just go when I'm asked, and I make no conditions on it. The date's open, it belongs to you. As long as you want me, I'm coming. Because I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love you. It's given me everything. I don't know anybody, you know. I stand here before you tonight. I don't know anybody in the world I trade places with. I'm really, I, I can't think of a single thing in this world right now that I actually want that I don't already have. I live where I want to live. I do what I want to do. I have a host of friends. I just, I just love life. Every day of my life is a blessing because of you. And you know, there's a word that's bandied around in alcoholics anonymous all the time about gratitude. Just an easy word to say. And these people I hear me with alcoholics anonymous so grateful they can't see. They, they stand at podiums with big tears drinking on their eyes saying, I'm so grateful for this program I can't see. They always stumble over people getting out the door. They wouldn't pick up a chair or an ashtray if their life depended on it. They're so grateful they can't see. I don't think gratitude is a word. I think it's something you do. If you don't believe that, go down and order a fine meal at that restaurant. And when that waitress comes up and hands you the check, just get up and thank her. <laughs> and not leave her any gratuity. Then go back and sit at her table ten minutes later and ask for a cup of coffee. Gratitude is an action. I never knew that. When I was about seven years sober, the old lady who carried the message to me, who was like a mother to me, a lady by the name of Myrtle Snyder, who was dead now, was struck with a very serious heart attack in the town of San Bernardino, which is about 80 miles from where I live. And I got an old rattletrap car that don't run half the time, and I'm working nights, and I finally get this message that I come in off of this ship, and I'm getting this old rattletrap car, and I'm driving to San Bernardino to see Myrtle. Because her son tells me she's going to die, and Johnny, she wants to see you. And she loves you so much, and so I'm going, and I don't know what to say. I'm driving down this old road, highway, and this old rattletrap car, I don't know if it's going to make it or not. And I, I'm scared and I don't know what to do because I love her more than anything I've ever loved in my life and I don't know what I'm going to do when she's gone. I'm going to try to tell her how to thank her and try to show her how much I love her and everything. And I don't, I don't have those words. I don't have, the, I don't have this thing. And when I get there, I go and sit on her bed and she's got these tubes hanging out of her nose and stuff and all that 
machines attached to her. And, I, and I'm sitting there, and she's in this deep coma, and I'm crying. I, I don't know how to do it. I'm trying to say, Mom, I love you. I, 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 how do I thank you? I, I, what can I do? And I, I'm just bubbling. And her eyes cleared. And she had the prettiest, clearest blue eyes you've ever seen in your life. And she looked at me, and she smiled. And she said this to me. Sweetheart, there is only one way in God's world that you can ever express your gratitude in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's remain a good example of what this program can do for you. You know, if there's one prayer I have, I hope and pray to God that I always will. Thank you. Norm Alfie, 1954, I believe he got sober. Here's Norm Alfie. We open the evening with a moment of silence, followed by... Good evening, folks. My name's Norm, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm certainly happy to have the opportunity to be here tonight and participate, and I want to thank Jane and Glenn and the entire committee for the opportunity to be here and share my experience, Frank, and hope with you folks that I can come by another day myself. And to welcome all of the new people. I was surprised when they asked for new people and there were no new people to raise their hands. You know, this time of year we get a lot of new ones coming in. This is the, the last of the Christmas holdouts are starting to get here about now. Oh, we get a deluge of people coming in. But for the people that may be here new tonight, uh, if you will, try to keep an open mind on what you can use while you take it with you. And if you can't use it, kick it out of the chair and leave it there. I'm sure you've got a lot of meetings here, uh, which gives you the opportunity to get out and get to a lot of meetings in Fresno before you make any decisions about your program or about Alcoholics Anonymous in general. And you will, if you will, please try to remember that anything I might say here tonight are going to be things that I personally believe in. It's going to be what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous means to me. It's going to be some things that I use to stay sober over a period of time. But I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an authority or consultant on the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an example, good or bad, that AA works. That it has been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, or go to jail now for two weeks, 11 months, and 27 years. <laughs> I brought that up because... <laughs> I really didn't think anybody would be impressed. <clears throat> I am, obviously, I never brought it up. But I've been talking about it for years, you know, I keep thinking we're going to get a pension program going here in AA, and if we do, I... <clears throat> God, I want to get credit for all my time, but... To the new guy that's sitting out here tonight, it's a difficult thing to digest when you hear people stand up here and talk about, you know, periods of sobriety. And I can relate to that. I can recognize what he's going through because I can still remember sitting there in that first AA meeting, and I hope to hell I never forget. I'm sitting there, and I'm 29 years old at the time. I'm 57. You can always tell a guy trying to figure it out, but <clears throat> it saves a lot of calculation all that crap. Anyway, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm 29 years old, and the guy stands up in front of the meeting that night, and he says, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink, steal anything, and go to jail now for nine and a half years. And my reaction to him was the same as all new people. You know, hey, I wanted to go outside and throw up. I, I sat there like oh, nine and a half years. Jesus, he's the biggest liar I've ever heard. Well, how the hell could a guy go nine and a half years out there in that rotten jungle and not drink? And I, you know, I hadn't come to AA for nine and a half years. Who did? I came to AA for a little while. I think we all did. I, I came in here to, to get the heat off. I had a lot of heat on out there in the street, and I wanted to get the heat off. I wanted to get back out and get going because alkies are busy people, right? I had a lot moving and I wanted to get out there before it was gone. You know how that is. And I, I had a lot of my 
friends out there that were waiting for my arrival. <laughs> my best friends. I couldn't think of their names, but they were my best friends. I, you know, I, I was deeply concerned about their well-being. I was afraid, you know, who's there to guide them? They'll die. You know, I, uh, well, I almost rationalized myself right out the door and back into them gin mills, but I, I kept going to meetings. And, uh, I went to meetings because my sponsor said, you got to go to meetings. And I didn't like my sponsor. But I knew he thought that I couldn't go to a lot of meetings, and so I went to a lot of meetings. Hey, uh, and if I'm going to say anything tonight that may be significant, it's just, you got to go to meetings. And I don't care whether you've been around for 28 days or 28 years. You know, without any meetings, it's very difficult to function out there on the street. And you see this last year, for example, I, uh, five friends of mine, two of them with 16 years, one with 18 years, one with 24 years, one with 26 years, and they're all out there drinking. And they all have the same thing in common. They haven't been to meetings now for a long, long time. And so, for me, without the meetings, why, it's very difficult to function. If I'm going to hold any semblance of sanity and serenity, keep any peace of mind. If I'm going to keep it where it's supposed to be, I've got to have the equalizer. And the equalizer in my life is the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because they, they know about me. And they got the answers to my problems. If I could have found the answers to my problems out there on that street, God knows I'd have still been out there, you see. But those people didn't have any of the answers, and I came in here, and they had the answers to my problems and to my questions. And when I was new, I had a lot of questions, and I kept wondering about the next nine and a half years and what the hell I was going to do. And they assured me that I needn't be concerned, that really all I had to take care of was right now, because that's all I had. And that's all I've got is right now. I couldn't change what happened a couple of hours ago, and I can't tell you for sure what's going down a couple of hours from now. If there's anything going on, my life is going right now. And man, I better get all I can get right now. Good, pattern and different, because it may not be true again, you see. Or maybe I'm not walking down that street one more time. And so uh, I discovered a long time ago that if I'll just kind of take care of right now, that the balance will be all right. And I've been working that way now for almost <clears throat> 28 years. And it was really just the other day that I walked through the doors. It went, you know, that fast. The other day, when I'm sitting there in those AA meetings, and I'm going through the same, you know, the mental gymnastics that all new people go through. I'm sitting there wondering, uh, what am I doing in AA? You know, why, why am I an alcoholic? You know, all new people, I'm sure, sit there, why am I an alcoholic? You know, Jesus, of all the things it could have been. <clears throat> There's the vocation with any of us. I didn't go down to my high school concert, and he said, Norm, what would you like to be? And I, I said, an alcoholic. <laughs> but he said, marvelous, we got a hell of a program for Jackass's boy, yeah. And I took that program and I ripped that city out there for 15 years and I ended up in AA and everybody lives happily ever after and you know that, isn't it? And I sat there and I wondered, you know, why am I an alcoholic? We've got a million people in AA, we've got a million answers to that question. Because the only thing a couple of alcoholics agree upon is the fact that AA works. But then we're going to argue about everything else, so we're going to argue about what makes an alcoholic. And I felt initially that I'm alcoholic by virtue of my family. I, my people are Irish-Italian, first generation born in this country. <laughs> too poor to paint and too proud to whitewash. <laughs> Not overly intelligent, talked a lot with their hands. <laughs> but they knew a hell of a lot about booze, I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> they knew how to make it and drink it. The Italians made it and the Irish drank it and I got to AA and that's about the way it went down. Yeah. I felt at the beginning, you know, the people and the places and the things created all my problems and the trouble. My family, the environment, I'm a product of L.A. and anybody coming out of East L.A. had a problem. But East L.A. is a city, and you can get out of anywhere you want to get out. If you want it bad enough, and you're willing to make some kind of sacrifices together to do it, you know it and I know it. These things do not create alcohol. I don't think alcoholism. I, I'm an alcoholic because I drank too much whiskey. And I figured that out by myself. What a giant decision that was, yeah. 
for sure. Are you going to mess around out there in that gray area? Are you going to dabble? Are you going to compromise your life and your living? And the steps of this program are the commandments as you understand them. Somewhere down the road, everybody goes to scratch. It's kind of sad. I don't particularly care for it, but that's the way it is. And I understood that a long time ago, but I didn't pay any attention. I went in front of a judge, and the judge was to send me out to the reformatory, and I was to spend some time out there. I got a release, I got put on probation, I came back into L.A. I'm looking for the fantasy land, I suppose, and the fantasy land I was trying to find was booze. And booze walked in, and it was in 41. It was Easter week in L.A. It was Balboa Beach in the rendezvous ballroom, and Stan Kenton and Padre Beer, and it was a hell of a deal, man. We'd drink a little Padre, we'd get a little buzz on, we'd go on that dance hall, we'd dance with them dollies, we'd act four times drunker what we were, and we'd breathe on them girls, you know, let them know, huh?
<laughs> you know, you're always coming from behind. You always got the heat on you. And when you're right, you got to give her hell. Tuesday's a good day for an alcoholic. He, he missed Monday. Bam, Tuesday, he goes. But when it's right, he goes. And I did a good job board ship. When I ship pulled into port and I was on a beach, I got a little truck. I had three court marshals. I had a debt <clears throat> summary, a general court. Uh, the general court marshal was the highest the Navy had to offer at that time. <laughs> I got 11 and a half months in a Navy brig up there at the top of Goat Island, run by the Marine Corps. I did 78 days solitary confinement on bread and water. I did some other miscellaneous things that are important. But all directed to booze. <clears throat> now I fulfilled a commitment. I discharged on Christmas Eve of 45 and I came back to LA in 46. In 1946, I'm that alcoholic. In 1946, the invisible line I've crossed. I can't live with it, and I can't live without it. Once too many, a thousand aren't enough. <clears throat> Trying to find the answer to living out here in a quart of whiskey, and I can't find it. My whole life revolves around booze. People would sell it, and people would drink it. And a half a dozen, my <clears throat> no control over my destiny. I am the alcoholic, but I don't recognize it. In 1946, it's kind of peculiar. You know, God moves in strange and mysterious ways. And no matter what you do or you don't do, it's going to work out that way anyway. In 1946, I was having a bad time in a, in a town down south. It's a rotten town. It's called Pasadena. <laughs> I was having trouble in Pasadena. Every time I turned around, I was getting picked up. I got picked up my second 502. I go in front of the judge, and the judge says, a year suspended, three years probation, pay your fine, get out of here. As I'm walking out of the courtroom, I remember like yesterday, I'm saying to myself, self, don't drink in Pasadena. Now, you don't need to be overly intelligent to understand that, right? <clears throat> You're having a lot of trouble. That judge, you know, he means business. He's never lied to you in your life. If you come back to Pasadena, you're going to get drunk. He's going to get you. You're going to jail. He's going to stay out of town. A couple of months. And then I'm sitting in the gym all one night, and I must be 70 miles away. And I was drinking, and I committed the cardinal sin, and I began to think. And an alcoholic should never do that. He should think or drink. Don't go both. Oh, no, I, I got to thinking about <clears throat> Pasadena. Yeah. I want to go back to Pasadena. I'm going back. It's a free country. And I'm a veteran, by God. And so I went back. Hell, obviously. I, I couldn't have been down two or three hours. And I'm totally smashed. And I remember that I met a buddy of mine. We was in a place called the Green Terrace. We're walking out. It must have been about 1.32 o'clock in the morning. We're getting my car. We're heading for Eagle Rock for an after-hours joint there. And the next thing I know, I, a car has made a left turn in front of me. And the next thing you know, I'm waking up in the morning. And I'm in the slammer in Pasadena. Yeah, scared to death. Always scared to death. Always living on the edge. Always coming from behind. I go down in front of the judge, and the judge, he reads it, and he says, a 501 felony, drunk driving, hit and run, bodily injury and fouls. And you know how your heart drops right down. How you die a thousand times. And he said, there's no place on the streets for people like you. And he turned to the man, and the man took me off. And in the city jail, I shared a cell with a guy going to AA, 1946. God moves in strange, mysterious ways, and no matter what you do or you don't do, it'll come to pass anyway. One guy got out of jail. One guy out of 200, 250 guys was getting out of the camp once a week to go to these AA meetings, and that's my cell partner. That's the guy that planted the seed. <clears throat> strange how it worked out. Now, I didn't go to any meetings with him. I remember him sitting there. You know, he would people would pick him up. You know, they'd take him to a meeting. He, AA didn't come to the jail at that time. And after one of the meetings, he'd sit around and he'd talk about the meeting, what had happened. He said, Norm, why don't you go to a meeting? You're in here, you're in here because of drinking. And I, and I remember, like yesterday, saying, Sully, I, I'm not going to a meeting. I'm no alcoholic. You know, I'm a, you know, a heavy drinker. I'm, I'm having a lot of bad luck. I, I'm thinking of unusual circumstances and rotten drivers and <clears throat> bad whiskey. 
I'm not an alcoholic. I'm, I'm too young. I said, what the hell? I get to be your age. You're, you know, you're over the hill, man. You're 36. What do you really got to look forward to? And I, I've eaten those words several times, I'll tell you that. But at that point in time, I thought, you know, you know it's a place to go when you got too old, you couldn't do anything else. And he went out and his way, and, and I went mine. But I never forgot about it. And if I'm going to, um, if I'm going to say anything tonight that might be important to the new people, like that seed was planted. Now I'd never been to any meeting, but that seed about AA, a place to go for for drinking. Now you never forget about it. If there's any new people here tonight, and I hope they really don't have to. But if you go back out again, uh, you're not going to forget about us. Uh, we're going to screw that drinking up. You're not going to have any fun out there anymore. You see. <laughs> You're going to be sitting around and you're, you're going to remember about us. And God willing, why well, you'll come back to see us. God willing, you won't have to go back out. But that seed was there. And eight years later, I got up off of the floor in February of 1954. And I was wondering about a buddy of mine named Sullivan that I'd shared a jail cell with in 1946. And well, he was still around. But it took those eight years. I had to drink some whiskey in order to get qualified. I went to work at that time for one of the largest construction firms in the world. They were in the pipe business, the concrete pipe, and we drove a lot of tunnels in those days. It was owned and operated by three Yugoslavs that came from the old country. They made all our money with hard work and good whiskey. So you know I'm working with the right outfit at the right time. We had work going all through the 11 western states. And each and every time, you know, I'd pull into a, into a new job with a, the responsibilities to get bigger and the money to get bigger, and man, I'm living. I, I'm drinking better whiskey and I'm drinking it in better joints. I did have a little setback about that. I met and married a, a red-headed Irish woman. Had a violent temper, a rotten disposition, yelled at me a great deal and never recognized my sensitivity. <clears throat> if you're an alcoholic, you'll agree we are very sensitive people, right? Not only that, she was pregnant a great deal of the time, too. <clears throat> that was a terrible setback. My bar associates had told me, I remember sitting around the gin mills when we'd be talking about things of this nature. And they're giving this good advice about now, man, don't don't marry a woman who hasn't got a job. My God, you're taking on an overhead. <clears throat> you, you know, you, you've got a woman with a decent job, why well, you've increased your money. You know, you've got a double income. And about midnight, that makes sense. And Red had a hell of a job. Yeah, things were great. It's <clears throat> going good for about two months, maybe three at the outside. And I remember coming home one night, and she says, Norm, I've been to the doctor and I'm pregnant. <clears throat> I've got to quit my job. And I couldn't believe what I was listening to. I... You know, I dare tell an alcoholic something you don't want to believe. I don't believe that. I thought we ought to get a second opinion on that thing anyway, you know. And she told me that she was home free. You know, them Irish are pretty hard-headed. And, and she's this way it's going to be. And I thought, well, what the heck? That isn't that bad a deal. That keeper takes about nine months. Uh, we'll give her free, maybe, to get on her feet. We'll get that job back again. Everything's going to be just like it was. Is that the story of the alcoholic? Everything's going to be just like it was. Hell, that was 34 years ago, and that woman ain't turned a tap since that day, no. She got herself in that shape eight times. It was incredible. I, I couldn't believe it. Every other year, zing, there she goes, you know. The Vatican Rolex. Man, the number had come up 14 every other year. There she goes, you know. <laughs> and that continual harassment. I'd be gone two or three days, and I'd come home, and I was extremely tired, because I'd been busy, putting a lot of deals together, and when you walk in the house, you want to be met with a little love, affection, and understanding. Who the hell wants to be met with that crap, you junk again? 
sitting there about midnight with that Maybelline look, you know, you, you kind of get wide-eyed sitting there looking at that mirror, you, you devil, you, there you are. It's incredible how good-looking you get about midnight, isn't it? <clears throat> good-looking, well-built, intellectual and wealthy. Got a $30 smiling Frankie Gordon suit on. 50 cents worth of chili right down in front of you there, huh? You smell bad and you can't talk and you mumble. <laughs> you can't even order a drink, can you? Slide off the bar stool, go to the men's room, maybe it's a pay toilet. No money. You gotta slide under the door, huh? I'll bet there's some door sliders here tonight, huh? <laughs> then you slide out again. Never knew till I got to AA. Once you got in, man, all you had to do was turn the handle and walk out. But not the alkane, the hell with it, slide in, slide out, right? And then you wander around outside trying to find your car. That's the element in. Walking miles about, you can't find your car. Call home to your wife, you checked my car, didn't you? Gee, I think one of the highlights of the alcoholic's life is the night he finds his car. Kind of a spiritual experience, isn't it? You're walking down the street, there it is! It hasn't been impounded, God love your car. Open the door, get in, go to bed, right? Huh? And we laugh a great deal about all these things tonight, don't we? When we were walking down that road, when we were going through it, nothing's funny. Nothing's funny. Because I'm grinding up every loving thing I own. Every loving thing that he's in my life, that just he's getting. The respect of the people I work for, I do business with, it's gone. <clears throat> the old Yugoslavs, they sold out in 1951. An Eastern firm pulled in. And they took over and they changed the environment. <clears throat> Image was big, education was a must. They even said they would pay for it. Go tonight, we'll pay for it. We'll pay for your time, pay for your tuition, books. <clears throat> My age. But at 51, I, I haven't any time. At 51, I can't live with it or without it. I'm coming from behind all the time. That's all I can do to stay even out there. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, they, they beat me. They're never, never letting go. I'm the guy that makes a run out there. I drive the line. Yeah. And now I'm getting in a lot of trouble. And I'm starting to miss the budgets out on the jobs. And then I'm in, in a hell of a jam down in West Texas. We had a 90-mile line went from Odessa to Big Spring. And I'm a bad jam. It was so bad after I paid the fine. They drove me down to Midland, put me on a plane, sent me back. Sent so me back to L.A. and said, don't ever come back to West Texas again. And then they called the company and says, people like him we don't need. And then the company calls me in and says, we don't need people like you. And the next time we ever smell booze in your breath, boy, you're through. You drink too much. You're ruining your life. Get out of my office. You'll never do an outside job again. Not for us. Get out of here. The humiliation, huh? We can write volumes about it. We've been humiliated so many times, huh? How I want to reach over and grab him by the throat and grab him by the Who the hell do you think you're talking to, man? You Johnny come lately? I make a call on the backbone of the division. But I don't tell him anything. Because I'm frightened. These are the things I told the guys at the gin mill that night, though. Oh, I told him, did I tell him? I told him I'm going to quit. And he said, don't do that. But I didn't tell him. Up here, I said, I'm leaving him. I'm owning my own company. I'm going to run him out of business. That jerk's going to have to come down to see you for a job. He's going to walk in my office, and I'm going to say, get the hell out of here. I remember you. And then I had another drink, and I dreamed another dream, and I slid off another stool. The respect is gone. Respect of the people I work for and did business with. And then one day I, <clears throat> I'm driving into the house. 
I've been gone a couple of days again. And I'm scheming. And the algae is scheming. One more lie, one more promise, you know, red let me in. How many times have I stood there and just, you know, with the tears coming down going, baby, Jesus, give me a break. Don't throw me out. Hell, think of the kids. I'm going down to see that new priest down there. I'm going to take another pledge, baby. That's, that's what it's going to be. You, you wait and see. It'll be all right. And I'm scheming to get in. And then I start scheming to get back out. Yeah, and then this day she says, and she's not even sore. She says, Norm, you're a drunken bum. Hell, you'll never live to be 35 years old. You're bringing yourself to death. I'm in a running because of healing the kids in a running. I spent the major part of my life just sitting there looking through the front room window. Wouldn't you see a car come all night after night after night? I wouldn't you see it come in. You don't come in. I die. I hear a siren scream the streets and I die. No more. I call an attorney. I've asked for separate maintenance. I put a restraining order against you. You don't set foot on the property. I filed for divorce. You're out of my life. I'll always love you. But you tore out all the feeling, Norm. I just don't have any feeling for you one way or another. And so you throw a few things together and you walk out and you get in the car and you drive away. And you make that profound statement that each and every alcoholic makes. It's in this position and I say, why me? Why the hell did I do it? Why is it that I go three days or two? Why? I'm not that bad. Look at this bum Charlie don't even work. Always this. You know what I know. You're an alcoholic and you drink enough booze long enough and hard enough. It's just a matter of time to be grinded out, isn't it? Just a matter of time till you stand there and you tap. Sure, there's cases where people stick around for 20 years. Oh, he's hoping that jackass is going to straighten out. <clears throat> 20 years of watching him flock in and out of the house. 20 years of picking up the pieces. 20 years of lying. 20 years of promises you can't make. 20 years of saying the friends and relations don't come over. Norm's got the flu. He, he flew out of the beds when he flew, huh? Hell, I wouldn't put up with it 20 days, let alone 20 years, but there's people out there. God give them a lot of strength. I don't think he did them any favor. They give them a lot of strength, and they hang in. And the guy comes to a meeting, and she comes with him, and they, and they walk through a door. And the guy's hung out, and he looks bad, and she don't look too good. And then you see the same couple three or four months later, and they walk through the same door, and they go to meetings. And the guy's kind of sharp down a little, and his eyes are clear. And you look at the woman, and her eyes is a story. The story says, I've been waiting 20 years for this to happen, and finally it's happening today where happier than we've ever been in our life. A unique miracle that we choose to call Alcoholics Anonymous. I wish you got I could tell all the new people here tonight that's the way it's going to work out for you, but that isn't what we have to offer you. It's a variety of way of life. That's what we have to offer. No more and no less. <clears throat> but you got to get down to the point where there's nothing left. I don't mean financially, but nothing left within yourself. The respect of yourself as an individual goal. I don't think it was a guy or a woman walked through that door that still had any, any grand self-respect left. I think it, ah, that was gone. You stood there in front of the mirror one day and you take a good hard look at you and what you see you can't tolerate. I don't go to gym mills anymore that's got mirrors in it because I don't want to look. And one day, it was February and it was 1954, and I'm laying on the floor. And I've been on a hell of a tear. And I got up onto the floor and I walked in and I pick up a telephone and I... Got a whole lot of information, and I asked for the number of AA, and they gave me the central office in Los Angeles. <clears throat> Thank God for central offices, huh? because without central offices, why, people like me just wouldn't be here today. I called the LA central office, and the guy by the name of John C., hell of a guy. He answered the phone, and I said, do you know a guy named Sullivan? He said, what's his first name? And I said, I can't remember. He said, you've got to be kidding. He said, man, we got hundreds of Sullivans in AA, 
It's an Irish allergy boy. I thought you knew that. <laughs> and he couldn't help me to locate my friend, but he said, I'll tell you something now. If you got a drinking problem, son, you never have to take another drink again if you don't want to. Alcoholics Anonymous is an answer to your problem. Give yourself a break. Write down these phone numbers I'm going to give you. Call them. They'll be out to see you. And so I wrote down the numbers, and I started to call. And I got a hold of a guy, and he came out. And now the sponsor that I got a hold of happened to be one of those old hard-hearted sponsors. Went to school for hard-hearted sponsors. I used to think they sounded to L.A. to be a hard-hearted sponsor. And now his attitude about the program was that if you wanted AA, you had to want it as bad as you wanted the whiskey. And if you didn't want it that bad, what are you doing here? Yeah, any length to get it. Any length to get the whiskey, any length to get the program. He said, I'm going to tell you something flat out now, boy. You need us, and we don't need you. And don't ever forget it. Don't forget it. And he said, if you think I'm going to pick you up and take you to you're crazy. He said, if you got a car, you drive. you got a car, what the hell are you doing in there anyway? Yeah. But he said, here in the last couple of years, you'd be surprised. We softened up a great deal. We've been taking chances on guys with cars. And they're making it, by God. Some of them, yeah. <laughs> but he said, if you haven't got a car, you can take a bus. And if you haven't got the bus money, you walk. He says, how many miles did you walk for the whiskey? Well, you can walk for the program, and it's a better deal. He said, I'm going to be down at a meeting called Temple City. It meets in Rosemary. He said, I'll be down there tonight. And I'm going to meet you there in the parking lot. And I'm going to meet you in a couple of more meetings. And I'm going to introduce you around. I'm going to get you a lot of phone numbers. And he said, bring 350 because you got to buy a book. If you don't have a book, you ain't going to make it. Now, all this he laid out. And I'm not saying it's right. But I'm not saying it's wrong either. I'm only saying that's the way the program was brought to me. And so that night I went down to the meeting. I went there in spite of it. I went there in spite of myself. I went down there because the old shooter upstairs didn't snap that angel off my shoulder. I went down there because I was curious. Maybe I wanted to hit him with my car. I don't know. There's a lot of reasons. Uh, who knows? And I got down there to the meeting and I pulled him in the parking lot and there he was. And he walked up and he opened the door and I got out. And he put his arm around me and we walked in. And I loved that guy from that day till the day he died. And that guy was very controversial. He, uh, carried a terrific message. He was a tremendous speaker. He helped thousands of people out there. God knows how many people he helped. But he had a very difficult time in, in helping himself. You see, he wanted to be the director. He wanted to be the guy that, that told everybody how to run it. Tolerance had God-given qualities. Just let another man live his life the way he wants to live it. Let him work his program the way he wants to work and not the way I want it. He couldn't do that. He couldn't surrender. He couldn't turn his will and his life over to the care of anybody on an all-time basis. Chapter 6 was for everybody else, but not for he. And so the ultimate end was that he got resentful, and the resentments ate him alive. And he went back out after eight years. And he tried to come back to see us from time to time, but his ego wouldn't let him stay. The killer of the alcoholic ego wouldn't let him stay because he couldn't forget he was the guy that carried the message. He wasn't, he couldn't forget that. And he says to me, he says, Norm, all the guys that I sponsored are now my sponsor, Norm. And he'd go back out. And he stayed out there down there 12 years. And then he had a severe heart attack. Drove to his knees. Physically, he couldn't get any more whiskey down. He came on back to see us, and he spent a year and a half. And then he died. And he was a hell of a guy. And he was the greatest sponsor that I've ever seen, because he's the guy that took the time to come see me on a busy Sunday afternoon. They met me down there in that meeting. And took me in there and introduced me around all them guys. Got them phone numbers. Drank that rotten coffee. Listen to everybody talking at the same time about different things and everybody interrupting everybody. You never got to hear the end of nothing. <laughs> they 
Yeah, he'll tell me, keep coming back. And you're sure if you do, you'll hear the end of something around here, my God. Yeah. And this old Temple City meeting was an extremely wealthy group. We had so much money in the group in those days, we had donuts before and after the meeting. Can you believe that? We had them red jelly donuts. We didn't have them cheap Jack Plain donuts. Red jelly donuts. They were good eating. Good for new people. You see a new guy come through the door, he's all green and hung up. And the red jelly donut committee slide up on him. Yeah. Nice to have you here. You're new, aren't you? Would you like a donut? Oh, Jesus. Did you ever look at a red jelly donut when you got a hangover? It'll make your teeth itch, I'll guarantee you. Looks like something you left on the street last night. What it looked like, yeah. But then the meeting began, and the guy stood up in front of me, and I didn't see to tell everybody what a jackass he was. I talked about a number of people like the hell out of him, all the jails he'd been to, and people laughed. He talked about drinking something called Jamaica Ginger, and to give him a jake blade, and the crippled men the man had put him in a hospital for two months. And they were hysterical over the fact the guy couldn't walk. My sponsor said, they're going, did you hear that? Yeah. You know how them sponsors, they got it. They're not got it. They're here, here, here. Yeah. They think you're deaf. They got you in the front row and they knocked the hell out of you all night. Listen to that. No, you're not deaf. I hear the whole damn thing. And I get to thinking, you know, I'm underqualified. Man, I really haven't been around. Compared to this guy, where have I been? My God, this guy's been in 70, jails. I've been in 25 at the outside. I drank a little Vitalis and Sneaky Pete while I was in the Navy. But other than that, you know, I really hadn't been there. And I'm thinking, I better get back up. I got a lot to do out there. And then the guy makes that very profound statement. He takes it out of the book. Come in. Doesn't make any difference what you drank or where you drank it or how much you consumed. It's what it's doing to you. He said it was tearing up any part of your life. You don't have to go any farther. And I sat there and I thought, yes, my friend, it sure has. I'm not so sure I want to quit the booze, but it's tore the hell out of my life. I'm so tired of hurting myself, I could just spit. I'm tired of people knocking the hell out of me and going to the, going to the jails. People calling me up and saying, don't come to see me anymore. They're calling me up and saying, give me the money, boy. Get in fast. I'm tired of hiding in the doorway because I can't stand to see the guy coming up the same side of the street. I'm tired of hanging my head when I talk to people because I can't look anybody in the eye. And I'm tired of that. And I looked at that man that night, and the one thing I knew past a shadow of a doubt that I never had to live that way again if I didn't want to. How do you know that? You know. You know because AA is the problem of the example. There stood a street man out of LA, nine and a half years sober, he's an example. He's clean and he's sharp and his eyes are clear and he's happy. What he is speaks so loud, I cannot hear a word he says. By example. Boy, and he's dressed good. He's got himself a set of threads, probably cost him a hundred. And I'm thinking to myself, if he didn't get anything else out of AA, what a set of drapes. Boy, that's all right. I, I just might hang in a while. Maybe they, maybe they got another issue going down. There was a couple of marks there that could have been hustled. There was a lot of potential in that group. And I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, I just might stick around a while. And then the guy says, if I can do it, you can do it. And I'm thinking, maybe he's talking to me. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I could. What the hell? Uh, my life isn't that bad. To compound all these problems, this woman had divorced him and remarried. And his kids all hated him. And then one day, he bought the package of the program. And he had a change of attitude. And his kids came down to see him. And they learned to like him, to respect him, and to love him. And I look around, and what do I see? I see the miracle of miracles. 
I see the big tough guys, 190-pound tough guys in AA. And the beers are screaming down their face. And the haymakers out of South El Monte and Garvey Acres, Wilmar, the tough ones, sitting there and they're crying for the joy of it all. And the story was told, and I've heard the story so many times since, that they would laugh because they were miserable and they cried because they were happy and they called it AA. And you may say that's oversimplification and it may be, but it's the only program I got. You see, I discovered through the laughter of the program that I could clear out the wreckage of my past. Then I can take a thousand pounds of gill off my back and I'll lay it down. Now, through the tears, I discovered a way that I could feel, that I could help, that I could give. As a man says to me, my sponsor, you didn't buy it, you can't sell it. You can only give it more. To give. And there's room, you see, for all here. You pick up the ashtrays, the coffee cups. You make the coffee, the coffee detail. You're politically inclined. We run you for secretary and guarantee you the job, Norm. That's the kind of guys we are here. Or you make a call on the guy in the street out there that's hurting. And you sit out there with him in the middle of the night, giving away what you found. And it comes back tenfold. And you take it to a meeting. And the guy gets it. And a year later, you stand in front of a group. And the reward is insurmountable. A sense of well-being that you found in the whiskey you're going to find here. The sense of well-being is sitting in an audience and seeing a, seeing a guy uh, a year sober, getting a cake and looking out there and seeing his dad. My sponsor. He saved my life. Without him, I wouldn't be here. And you get welled up with a sense of well-being that's insurmountable. And the tears burn your eyes, and you don't hold them back, and you let them go because you're unashamed. <clears throat> a sense of well-being that I look for all my life. I, I found it here. And when I woke up in the morning, the buzz was gone. And in his place is that old friend of mine, you remember him, remorse. What do you say, Norm? You jerked my guts out, didn't he? Yeah. I'm going to drink a little whiskey. I didn't have to remember. Didn't have to think. And I was restored to that sense of well-being. And I traded that in for the sense of well-being I found here. And all I had to do was be willing to be willing to get a little for the hell of it one nothing in return. It's a marvelous experience. As I look back now, and I'm nearing another birthday, and I always kind of look back, and I remember, you know, that I almost kicked it all out. For you see, the second meeting I went to was almost my last. When that meeting was over with the devil said that my sponsor said, Norm, I'm going to meet in Pasadena tomorrow night. And I remember saying, you're kidding. <laughs> and he said, no, I always go to Pasadena. And he said, Pasadena's a rotten town. They must have some other meetings. And he said, I'm going. If you want to go, I'll be there. If you don't want to go, don't go. So what the hell, you don't think I can go? So I'll go. And I was a little nervous. Always I was nervous when I crossed the city limits. I got in there. I, I used to think I had an alarm system went off. I said, giddy, he's there. You know. yeah, but I got in there all right, by God. And I pulled into the meeting. And this meeting was one of those old-timers meetings. You hear about AA? <clears throat> they called it the Villa Street Group, the mother group. I'd be sober 10 years to read the steps. The speaker that night was an old-timer. He'd been sober 137 years. Yeah. <laughs> I got to love this guy later on. But this guy, when he spoke, he always showed a picture of himself. It was a great big blown-up mugshot taken him when he was doing time in the county jail. And the point that he tried to get across was he tried to, you know, look at me when I'm drinking and look at me now. And I looked at that picture and I looked at Artie and I thought, Christ, he looked better drunk that guy did, yeah. And they say, hey, just the hell of these buggers. i got to get out of here. 
And I remember even though the next day on the way to work, I'm going down Arrow Highway in the town of Irwindale. Tony's liquor store is over there on the left side. That car just pulled right in, been doing it for years. I walked in and there's a Tony Biggie, give me a pony. And she did. And I took it out of the car and I broke it. And I took a long drag. And I threw it away. And from that day to this, it doesn't been necessary to take a drink. God moving in strange ways. I mean, because I never threw any whiskey away in my life. One other time that I remember, I was at a junior college game in the Rose Bowl. And I was down in the men's room and I'm tipping one up and then walked a policeman. And he said, in the can or in the can? And I, and I remember saying, can we arbitrate this a little? And he said, oh, no, oh, no. And I poured it out, and I remember the tears coming to my eyes. The only other time. And my sponsor said, I want you to go to three meetings, and I guess I didn't want him to think I couldn't get to three meetings. And the third meeting I attended, well, I met a half a dozen guys, and they're all about the same age. And he said, we, we go to meetings uh, Friday night. We always go down to South San Gabriel. Why don't you come on down? And I walked into South San Gabriel, and as I'm going through the door, a guy was standing there pinning names on him. It was a guy named Don. I'd done some, a lot of drinking with three and a half years before. He said, Norm, where the hell have you been? I've been waiting three years for you. And I says, Donnie, ah, I thought you were dead. You, you never could handle your booze. <laughs> and the turning point is there. And he was part of the group. And that same meeting, a couple of months later, I'm sitting in the meeting, and a guy gets up in front of the group, and I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. It was a guy I did a lot of booze and was up in the valley. We had a lot of pipelines going in the late 40s. <clears throat> it was a guy that, uh, he was a crane operator and a heavy-duty mechanic. His name was Frank. And Frank was really one of the worst drunks I'd ever been around. And he was so bad that I couldn't drink with him even when he was buying. That's how bad he was. We called him Rotten Frank. To give you an idea how bad he was, he got 86 out of the Tulare Hotel for life. Now, anybody knows anything about the Tulare Hotel, it was so bad they burned it down a few years ago. That's how bad it was. Nobody got kicked out of the Tulare Hotel. Well, here was old rotten friend up in front of the meeting that night. And a woman's coming out of the door, she's carrying a cake, she's got three candles on it, he leans in and he blows them out. And he looks out there at the audience, and this guy's big, he's 200 pounds and he's an ounce. And the tears are streaming down his face, and he's crying, and he's all choked up, and he says, Man, I've never had it so good. And he sat down. <laughs> and the thing came over me like nothing I can ever remember. Uh, I got so choked up, I thought I was going to die. I, I didn't want to cry because I thought somebody might see me. I let him go anyway, and I, I cried unashamed. Not because I was miserable. Not because I was sorry for anything, but because I was happy, because Frank was a happy. I wanted to get up and say, Frank, tell me again, just how good is it, Frank? I had a feeling, a sense of well-being, and I've had hundreds since. And I'd like to tell you that every day is a holiday, and every meal is a banquet. But that isn't the guarantee here, as I made mention. Sobriety ain't a way of life. And whatever you are, my friend, you're going to be better at. As my sponsor said, he says, Norm, if you're a ditch digger, buddy, you're going to be a better ditch digger. We don't guarantee you're going to make a ton of scratches, drive a big iron, live in a big house in the hill, or rent we're going to call you home. No, you're going to be better. Yeah. And you're going to be able to stand out there, and you're going to be able to face it. But the days get moldy out there. Uh, you take the good days, Norm, you've got to take the bad ones, the heartbreak, the grief, and the misery. It's part of the, it's part of the action. And you've got to stand there, and you've got to hang in. You've got to be like everybody else, Norm. And those are the tough days, and I'm the first to admit. I don't like the heartbreak, and I don't like the grief, and I don't like the miseries out there. I don't like them bad days. I don't handle them too good. I've been through some. Unfortunately, I suppose we'll go through some more. It would seem to be that 
And God brings them all down to make them, make people like me a little stronger, maybe what's coming later on. I, I really haven't got the background, the education, the understanding to understand things of this nature, right? I know that I've seen some. I recall in 1962, I had a moldy ear, and I couldn't hit a lick, and everything I touched turned to pucky. And I remember standing out there in front of St. Louis Hospital, emergency area, called back without the state. I remember seeing the doctors and walking back out, and I remember standing there, and I remember crying. I remember saying, Christ, why me? Why did you have to do this? Why'd you take the boys? Christ, why had to do it? And I didn't handle it very well, and I never do. I forgot to remember the essential of who the hell I was and where I came from and what it took to bring me to that point in my life. So the biggest band now, why don't you remember Norm when it was tough? Why don't you remember the year of 46 when you got to kill those people? But for the grace of God, you didn't kill four people. Remember 51 and you lay in the tank in Big Spring, Texas, and the cockroaches are running over your head. You're laying on a dirt floor and they don't bring you nothing to eat for three days, huh? Those are things you had to give up when you came to AA, Norm. Yeah, those are sacrifices you had to make. If you think it's tough, you better remember. And you better also remember that the old man upstairs never gives you more than what you can pack. That he cuts everything to size, that he gives the big loads to the big horses. And the small ones he's always giving the guys named Norm. Instead of standing around crying a poor mouth about what you didn't get or what you did get, you better learn to say, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the day. Thank you for what you gave me. Thank you for the day. And thank you for the opportunity to be out there. Thank you for the almost 28 years you let me walk out there on the sunny side of the street. For I know guys that died and never saw 28 days. For they walked the street of booze and fantasy, busted dreams and broken hearts and tears by the bucket full. <clears throat> the guy that brought the program to me, old Sully, in 46, huh? The first guy that never told me about it. He had three years and he went back out and he flipped in and out. And then one night, several years ago, his sister-in-law called me. And she saw the program and she says, darn, this is Ginger. And I hate to tell you, but Sully was drunk this week and you don't need to worry anymore because he had an internal hemorrhage and he bled to death. And, and that was the end of the story. And, and she says, Norm, will you come on down and be a bearer, a Paul bearer? I, I can't find six to pack the box. And I thought, what a hell of a way to go. Huh? A guy in his 40s and he can't wrestle six friends. How overpaid am I, huh? How overpaid? How very fortunate am I? <clears throat> he went out as hard as they go, with the heat on and the screws down, and he had to justify his existence to the bitter end. And I haven't had to justify my existence to anybody. I've been able to be out there and participate. I've been able to be a man on the street and do a job and do the best I can do with the equipment that God gave me. Be able to finish every day and go home and walk in a house where I live and in the house is a woman and she's my woman. And she's a redheaded and an Irish woman and she's glad I'm coming in most of the time. You know, she respects me because I'm her old man. And nobody cries in my joint today because an old man is drunk and tearing it up. And I had every kid of mine scream at me for a long time. And I've had the opportunity to raise them up from small ones to big ones. I said, send them to some schools if they want to go. Not that I'm an advocate of higher education, but I, I told them, if you want to go, I'll do all I can do to help you get through. And I got two sons that are my business partners today. And I've got daughters that I've taken downtown one by one by one. I bought them the first pair of high heel shoes they ever put their feet in. And that don't sound like a hell of a lot unless you missed it, then you know what I'm talking about. I saw them go from the chicken to my life. And and they put on some shoes, different dresses. And they became the women of my life. And I cried because they're women. Because women, they attract jackasses. You know that. 
Then out of the house, they've been coming for years. I still got one at home. She's 17. She's a caboose. And they're coming back through again. Only they're worse. Or I'm older. One come in a couple of months ago, I couldn't believe it was the worst I'd ever seen. He walks in my house, and he's got his hat on. I couldn't believe it. And I said, Sonny, when I was breaking into houses, at least I would take my hat off for Christ's Is your head cold, boy? Get it off. My daughter was furious. I couldn't understand it. Yeah. We disagree without being totally disagreeable, you see. And I walked her sisters down the aisle, one by one by one, and I <clears throat> tried every foot of the way, unashamed, knowing this jackass down at the altar down there waiting. <laughs> I sent out invitations, and people come. 70, 80 alcoholics all sitting in the church, and they're all crying at the same time. They know the guy's a jackass, too, right? <laughs> you can't fool them alky guys, I'll tell you that. But Alkies are very sentimental people, you know. We could go we could go to the opening of the supermarket, we'd all cry, wouldn't we? <laughs> but I'm really being a little hard on my son-in-laws, they're all working and taking baths. How the hell are you gonna beat that? <laughs> I got a couple of drillers in the oil business, I got one's a dentist. I'm gonna have teeth and gas any way you wanna cut it. <laughs> I got five granddaughters and a grandson. They come to my house and destroy it and take the knobs off my television. They my peanut butter and my slippers and they make me cry a little bit. <clears throat> and they get to think about guys that never have the opportunity to see grandkids do nothing. And once again, I can say I'm overpaid. I wish I could tell you. I wish I could find a lot of good words. How do you tell anybody that every loving thing I've got or any loving thing I'll ever be in my life is going to be because of AA? I can only tell you, buddy, if you're sitting out there new tonight, I'll guarantee you one thing. It's been a hell of a walk from the L.A. County Jail in Lincoln Heights to the point that I stand today. And but for the grace of God, Alcoholics Anonymous, and friends like you, I could have missed it all. Thanks a name. God bless you. Norman Elfie. Thank you very much. My name is Norm, and I'm an alcoholic from Monrovia. And I'm extremely happy to have the opportunity to be here, and I, I want to thank uh, Bruce and uh, Henry and the entire committee for the opportunity to be here tonight to participate, the opportunity to uh, see some old friends and to reunite myself with some uh, new from old friends and to, to meet some new people here. To have the opportunity to say uh, welcome to all of the new people that are out there tonight for your first, second, or third meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you will tonight, why try to keep an open mind on what you can use, why take it with you, and if you can't use it, why be good enough to kick it out of the chair and leave it here. <clears throat> and you've got to remember that anything I might try and say here tonight are going to be things that I personally believe in. It's going to be what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous means to me. It's going to be some things that I used to say sober over a period of time. That I'm not by any stretch of imagination an authority, a consultant, or a counselor on the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an example, good or bad, that AA works. That it has been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, and go to jail now for over 28 years. I'm sure that... <laughs> I really didn't think anybody would be impressed. <clears throat> I am, obviously. I never brought it up. 
And you never know, I've been talking about it for years, you know, we've had a lot of changes in AA, and I keep thinking, you know, somewhere down the road we're going to get a pension program going, and uh, by God, if we ever do, I sure want to get credit for all my time, so I bring it up anytime I have the opportunity, and if I don't have the opportunity, I'm going to talk about it anyway, but to the new guy that's sitting out there tonight, it's difficult to digest when you hear people talking about this sobriety, you know, you're sitting there and you're a couple of days sober, you're nervous as hell. You're sitting on your hands, jumping out of your knickers, and you hear a guy say, I haven't had any booze now for 28 years, and you probably were going to run outside and throw up. And I can <clears throat> you know, I can understand that. I can still relate to it. I hope the hell I never forget. You know, I'm sitting here in that first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and at that time I was 29 years old. And a guy stands up in front of the group that night, and he says, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink, steal anything, and go to jail now for nine and a half years. And I, I felt the same way. You know, what a liar. Jesus, what a liar. Well, man, there ain't no way a guy could go nine and a half years if he doesn't drink. Now, how can he make it out there in that rotten jungle and deal with all those lousy people and meet his responsibilities and, and be sober for nine and a half years? And I just couldn't visualize it. Anybody can do it. And I hadn't come to AA for nine and a half years to compound the problem. I'd come to AA for a little while. I think most of us did. I, I came in here because I had a lot of heat on out there, and I wanted to get that heat off. I wanted to find some way to control this thing that was giving me so much trouble. I wanted to uh, get back out and get going because I had a great deal to do. Uh, alcoholics are busy people, and I had a lot moving out there. And I want to get out before it's all gone. You know how that goes. And I had a lot of my friends were out there, my best friends, and they were out there. And uh, I couldn't think of their names, but they were my best friends. And I, uh, I was concerned about their well-being, and I was quite sure that they'd have a difficult time to survive if I wasn't there, and I went on and on with this damn thing, and I almost rationalized myself right out the door and back into those gin mills, but I, I kept going to meetings, and if I'm going to say anything tonight that may be significant, why, you got to go to meetings, you see, it's so very, very important. Whether you've been around for 28 days or 28 years, it really doesn't make much difference, not as far as I'm personally concerned. You see, if I'm going to maintain any semblance of sanity and serenity and peace of mind and sobriety, if I'm uh, going to... Uh, find the equalizer in my life. I'm going to find it here in Alcoholics Anonymous. The answers to my problems, most of my problems, why, I'll be able to relate to talk to the people here. You see, if the people out there on that street could have answered my problems, hell, I'd have still been out there. There's no question about it. But uh, they couldn't, and so I came here, and so they became the, the equalizer in my life. And today, more so than ever, uh, last year was kind of a mass exodus. There were half a dozen of my friends. They were from 16 to 26 years, and they all went back out again, and they're all still out there. And I talked to several of them, and their stories are all the same, that they just haven't had any time for the last 10, 15 years to get to any meetings, you see. The equalizer in their life was long gone. They got involved in other things that they felt were more important, and now they're out there struggling to try to get back again. Easier to stay here, you see. And when you're new, it's so very important because you've got a lot of questions. And like, hey, I'm concerned about the next nine and a half years, and they assured me in a short period of time. But I needn't be concerned about the next nine and a half years. It, all I had going for me was now, right now. They said, Norm, it's now. And there isn't any more. You couldn't change what happened a couple of hours ago. And I can't tell you what's going down a couple of hours from now. But if there's anything moving in my life, it's moving. It's right now. And you better get all you can get right now, good, bad, or indifferent. Because you may not be through this way again. Or maybe it's not going to be through again, so you better get a hold of it. You know, all you can get. And if you're sitting out there and you're brand new and it's going good, for God's sake, don't talk. You know, don't say to your sponsor, how come it's going so good? You know, it's going good, man, get it. All you can get right now, because I'll tell you, buddy, it'll get salty later on. I'll guarantee you that. Yeah. Ah. 
And by golly, I come to find out that if I just kind of take care of it right now, the day it take care of itself, and I've been moving that way now for over 28 years. And it was just the other day, really, that I walked through the door and I sat there in those AA meetings, and I'm a brand new guy, and I'm going through the mental gymnastics that everybody goes through, is, uh, what the hell am I doing in AA? Why am I an alcoholic? This isn't something I've been looking forward to over a long period of time. I had not gone down to my high school concert, and he said, what would you like to be? And I said, an alcoholic. <laughs> God, he was overjoyed, my concert was. He said, marvelous, we got a hell of a program for jackasses, boy. Yeah. And I took that program, and I ripped that city for 15 years, and I ended up in AA. As a matter of fact, I was not even an alcoholic the day before I came to the program. None of us were, were we? <sighs> we're all heavy drinkers. <clears throat> Victim of unusual circumstances and rotten drivers. But man, I know alcoholic, you know. And so I'm sitting there wondering, why is it? All of a sudden, here I am, and I am an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic probably by virtue of my family. My family were all heavy drinkers. Oh, they did a lot of boozing out there, but I was the only alcoholic in the whole rotten family, and that bothered me a lot. You see, I thought, why have I been given the cross to carry when I'm the best they produced? And there was never any question about that, because I had talked to myself about that several times, and the, the answer always came out, you are the greatest guy you know, yes, well. Uh, why are you an alcoholic and nobody in your family's alcoholic? And I couldn't solve that problem. And my people were fine people. Don't get me wrong, and I loved them and they loved me. My people are Irish-Italian. Uh, they're not overly intelligent. They talk a lot with their hands. They're uh, uh, too poor to paint and too proud to whitewash. And that take care of us for about 75 years out there. But my God, when you want to know something about booze, you come to see us, and we'll tell you about it. We not only told you about it, but we made it. <clears throat> the Italians made it, the Irish drank it, and I got to AA, and that's about the way it went. Yeah. I, I felt between my family and the environment that the problem was there. I'm a product of LA, and anybody coming out of Los Angeles had a lot of trouble with it. Well, LA is a city, and then, and you can get out anywhere you want to get out of. If you want it bad enough, and you're willing to make the sacrifices together to do it, and people, places, and things don't make anybody anything. No, whiskey made me alcoholic. And if you're sitting out there new tonight, well, maybe your problem is identical to mine, you see. And I figured all that out by myself. It was the whiskey. That was it. I drank that whiskey out there as hard and as fast as I could drink it. And somewhere in that long way of my life, I crossed some invisible line from the social aspect of drinking to the compulsive area. One's too many and a thousand aren't enough. Looking for the answer, living on a quart of whiskey and I can't find it. The whiskey was the problem and I'm the guy that did the drinking. So when you get down to the bottom line, I'm the problem. And that hasn't changed up to or including today. Because no matter where I go, I'm the first guy to get there. I don't think any of us had to call somebody up and say, Charlie, I'm down here on Vermont. Will you please come down and help me get it screwed up? I have never had to do that. I've been able to overreact to any situation anywhere, anytime. I don't need anybody to help me out there. I had all that before I ever took a drink. I still revert back to that old personality from time to time. I'm the first guy to admit that making money is good, but getting even is better a lot of times. That's <laughs> your... And that's the way it used to be. That was me. These were all the qualifications I had long before that booze. I traveled half the world in half my life. I made a complete ass of myself. <clears throat> I spent money I didn't have buying things I didn't need, trying to impress people I didn't like. <clears throat> I sat around them bar stools and talked to them high rollers <laughs> about being all things to all people. I built the castles in the air and formed the corporations. I talked in millions spent in thousands and never had a dollar in the pocket. I, I drove the Cadillacs up and down the barn night after night after night. And when them big money people said, what do you do, man? I said, I do it all. Boy, I thought, yeah. I'm the general manager of the universe, and don't you ever forget that. 
The alcoholic spends a lifetime impressing a group of people he's never met in his life that he is something he isn't. Ha! God! You might find me in August driving around L.A. with the windows rolled up in my car to make him think I had an air conditioner, you know. You are not going to want to miss... straight out. Sonny, don't impress us here. We have been impressed by experts in the business. <laughs> because everybody in AA is an expert. And the beauty of that statement is you needn't take my word for it. All you got to do is just kind of talk to the guy next to you. <clears throat> About anything, I don't care what it is, he's going to comment on it. If he doesn't know what you're talking about, he'll probably say, that's true, yeah. So you discover you're around a, a lot of experts, and no matter where you've been, there's a guy who got here before you did. I remember one night I was telling this guy, I thought he'd be impressed, I was new, and I said, Si, you know, I've been in jail about 25 times. He says, the hell you have, son, I did that in a year. You know, so. So you learn real early, just lay it all down and grab the package that's available to you here and be yourself. I don't have to compete with anybody today. I don't have to compete with you. Or you will I. All I got to be today is to be sober and be a little bit better than what I was yesterday. And that's enough. And if you're new here this evening, you might give it a little thought and you just might grab that package and you might take it out with me tomorrow on that city street and you might spend the day just being sober, being yourself, and being a little bit better than what you were yesterday. And I can tell you without any reservation whatsoever, it's the best deal I ever had in my life. And I'm a guy that looked half the world out there trying to find the best deal. And I didn't find it. Not until I got here and was surrounded and introduced and subjected to a marvelous group of people that chose to call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. This evening, to tell you just briefly about what I was like, I told you a great deal. I got a bad attitude, and by virtue of my bad attitude, I got a rotten attitude, as a matter of fact. And because of my rotten attitude, I had a lot of rotten trouble out there. My rotten trouble started in 1939. I wasn't drinking in 39. I was stealing. I was too young to drink. I, I'm a thief by trade. I'm an alcoholic by absorption. I... I was the vice president, general manager of all the outside operations of the Midnight Auto Supply in the San Gabriel Valley. I, I, I was in the car business. I could sum it all up by saying if it was too big to carry, I laid down beside it and claimed it, and that was the way it went. I became one of the greatest and finest car thieves that ever came out of the valley, but it was illegal. I was arrested. I went to jail, and that was the end of that vocation. After I got out of the can, I started, uh, I suppose, looking for something that was going to get me, you know, all moving, that uh, fantasy land, and that booze walked in. Uh, the first time I was drunk in my life was in 1941. It was Easter week in Los Angeles. Easter week, Balboa Beach, the Rendezvous Ballroom, Stan Kenton, and Padre Beer, and what a deal. Jesus, we, uh, we'd drink a little Padre, and we'd get a little buzz on, and we'd go on that dance hall, and we'd dance with them dollies, and we'd act four times drunk what we were, and we'd, we'd breathe on them girls, you know, let them know, you know. Big man's in from L.A., baby. What do you say, huh? Got a little booze out there in the car, you know. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Hell, it was fun. In the beginning, I didn't have any trouble. I didn't get any jams. I didn't wake up in the morning and have more to drink. Uh, on the weekends, it was the way it went. We either went to the Cotton Club down in Culver City or the Tree Down in Southgate or the Pasadena Civic or the Rendezvous Ballroom and down Balboa and it was the Dorsey Brothers and Kenton and the rest of it. It was fun. I kind of ground it out. I moved out of Padre because it never gave you enough. Uh, you got to drink a lot of it to get a buzz on it. I'm a guy to look for the buzz. And I moved from the Padre to the Rainier Ale, the old Green Death. And from the Green Death, I moved into whiskey. 
The one I got the whiskey I found it. The greatest thing made since money and girls was whiskey. I even got to the point in my life I like the taste of it. Yeah, God, what a break. My sponsor drank for over 30 years and hated every drop he ever drank, you know. But I, I got to the point that I liked the taste of it. But I like the buzz. Man, that whiskey gets your attention. And it gets it right now. It gets you downtown. And man, that's all I ever wanted to be. I want to be downtown. I don't want to get there in a little bit. I want to get there right now. And you got to admit that whiskey does. Difficult in the beginning when you're young and you're training out there. And I broke in on that 10 high. And that was about as rotten as you can get, that old 10 high. Burned going and coming and ran out my nose and made my eyes water. But I, I hung in, and I, I think that's important. <laughs> you know, if a guy's going to be an alcoholic, he doesn't give up because he heaves a little, does he? You stay in there, man. Yeah. And the day comes you can drink a pint of whiskey and you don't heave anymore and you kind of feel good all over about it, don't you? Yeah. And that was the beginning of the end. That whiskey started getting me in more trouble than I had been in before. I violated my probation in the end of 41. They were going to send me back to jail. Uh, the war broke out by then, and rather go to jail, I gave me the opportunity to join the service. So I joined the Navy. I went in the Navy in January 1942. I stayed four years, I went into seaman, came out of seaman. That's pretty hard to do. Uh, people said uh, to me, oh, Norm, how did you do that? And I, and I said, you just put your mind to it, that's all, right? An alcoholic, he can do it if he wants to. And the guy said, well, how come he didn't get a kick out of BCD or something worse, you know? And I, I said, I'm... I'm sure, like most alcoholics, oh, I'm a hard worker. So you can say that about most of the alkies. You know, they're hard workers. They've got to work 25% harder than anybody else just to stay even out there, right? That old alky's always coming from behind. He's always got the heat on. In order to get the heat off, they always get, when he's right, he's got to go. Our best day is Tuesday. <laughs> we miss Monday. Man, we give her hell Tuesday, don't we? We run all over. We're doing four jobs in one, getting that heat off out there. And that was the story of my life. I like ships. I like the sea. When I was aboard ship and I was at sea, I did a good job. <laughs> I didn't give me any trouble. I sure, I drank some of that shipboard juice, a little aquavella, vitalis, sneaky Pete, <laughs> a little fermented coconut juice, uh, you know, a few things like that. Uh, <laughs> stuff made by all those amateur distillers. But I, I was able to kind of keep it under control. When that ship pulled into port and I was on the beach, but I'm in a jam, one jam after another. <laughs> I never got back to the ship until they hauled me in. I was court-martialed for many other many things. I had a deck, a summary, and a general court. I did 11 and a half months in the Navy break up on the top of Goat Island off a general court-martial. Had 70, 80 days solitary confinement on bread and water, some other miscellaneous things that are all important, but all directed to the booze. Now, I survived the service. And I came back to L.A. in 46. In 46, that invisible line, I made mention. I passed it. <clears throat> I'm that guy out there really looking for that answer living that quart of whiskey now. Can't live with it and can't live without it and don't want to. I crossed that invisible line, I, I really couldn't tell you. 1920 doesn't really make any difference, but in, in 1946, I'm now starting to always come from behind. In 1946, uh, strange things happened, uh, in spite of myself. I heard about AA. In 1946, I was having a bad time in a rotten town down south called Pasadena. Bad town. Bad cops, rotten judge, terrible jail. I was having a lot of problems in that town. I got picked up on my second 502 and I went in front of the judge and the judge says, a year, suspended, three-year probation. He said, your probation stipulates, son, that if you're in a place that serves or sells alcoholic beverages, you're in violation. If I hear about it, or the probation department hears about it, you're going to be violated and you're going back to jail. 
when you're going to give me that year. Get the hell out of my courtroom. And I remember that day like yesterday. And I'm walking out of the courtroom with that sigh of relief to know that I've got through one more jam. And I'm saying to myself, self, don't drink in Pasadena, right? You don't have to have 130 IQ to know you're having a hell of a lot of trouble in that town. And it all seems to revolve around this brew. So don't do any drinking there. All right, I'm not going to. And I stayed out of town two or three months. The inevitable happened. Things are going good. But I'm drinking one night down one of the beach towns. I committed the cardinal sin. While I was drinking, I started to think. <laughs> An alcoholic should never do that. He should think or drink, but he should never do them both at the same time. Because I got to thinking about silly things like, I'm going back to Pasadena. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, about 10 o'clock and you're half smashed. And so I got in my automobile and I drove back to Pasadena and I pulled into a place there called the Green Terrace. I met a buddy of mine and we decided to close the place and we did. And the last thing I remember is we were heading for Eagle Rock. There was an after-hours joint over there, and that's the last thing I remember until a car made a left turn in front of me, and I couldn't see it. And I smashed into the side of it, and when I woke up in the morning, I was in jail, in Pasadena. Well, I pulled a book and slip out of my pocket, and I'm cited on a 501 felony, drunk driving, hit and run by Landry involved, and I might add. But for the grace of God that looks after damn fools and drunks, I didn't kill four people out there in the city street that night. You see, alcoholism is a game of seconds and inches. You know, a few inches, a few seconds, a snap of the finger. Three and a half, four feet, that's all you got to talk about. If I'd have been over about three and a half feet at the broadside of that car, the rate of speed I was traveling had to kill the people. I recognize that today. And how strange it is. God moving in these strange and mysterious ways, and no matter what I do or I don't do, it works out that way anyway. Here I am, I'm back into a town that I said I'd never be back to again. To hit a car, to walk down and stand in front of a judge who has no choice but to send me to jail. And in the city jail, I shared a jail cell with a guy who was going to AA. Now, that's crazy, isn't it? 200, 250 guys are doing time. One guy gets out of jail once a week to go to AA. Some people used to pick him up. They take him to a meeting. He was a trustee. It was an honor system. They take him to a meeting, and after the meeting, they bring him back, and they would lock him up, and we would sit there, and we would talk about this program. I didn't want to talk about it. He wanted to talk about it, and so we talked. You know, you don't have a big audience in a jail cell. And he, you know, he would always come back to say, Norm, why don't you come to a meeting? You're in here because of booze, and why don't you go to a meeting with me? And, and I told him you know, words to this effect. I said, Sully, I'm not an alcoholic. Now, I don't need this thing, whatever you want, you know, this AA thing. I'm having a lot of problems and bad luck and rotten people out there and a hell of a lot of bad drivers. I'm not an alcoholic. And good God, I'm much too young to be an alcoholic. I said, Jesus, I get to be your age. You're 36, you know, what you really got to look forward to, you? What do you have to contribute to anybody out there? You might as well go to AA. They have nothing else left. And that was the end of that. And he went his and I went mine. But you know, that seed was planted. And I never forgot about that guy. And over the next eight and a half years, periodically, I used to wonder what the hell happened to Sully. I wonder if he's still around. I wonder if AA's here. I wonder if he's going. In 1954, in February, I'm laying on the floor, and I'm about as sick as I've been in a long time. And I'm laying there thinking, I, don't, I just can't go on this way. And I, I got to wondering, what the hell is old Sullivan doing? I wonder if he's still going to sing AA. And you know, I went in, and I picked up a telephone, and I called the central office in Los Angeles because I was trying to find a guy named Sullivan I'd shared a jail cell with in 1946. That seed is extremely strong. I didn't go to any meetings. I knew very little about AA. If you're sitting out there new tonight, why, the seed is planted. 
And now you may choose to go back out again, and you may be sitting around them gin mills out there, but rest assured, we're going to be with you by God, I'll tell you that. And because the one thing we guarantee here is we'll absolutely louse up your drinking. That much is for sure. I hope the hell you don't have to go, but if you do, I hope you come back to see us. Well, I stayed out there eight and a half years. I drank a lot of whiskey in order that I might qualify for this program. I went to work for one of the largest construction firms in the world. I stayed with them 11 years. The company at that time was owned and operated by three Yugoslavs that came from the old country. They made all the money with hard work and good whiskey, so I fit. And we got work going in the 11 western states. We're in the pipeline business and the tunnel business. And I hit that high road. You know, I'm at the right place at the right time. And the jobs are bigger and better, and the money's coming in. I'm drinking better booze in better places, and life is good. And then I had a little setback. I met and married a red-headed Irish woman. <laughs> had a violent temper, a rotten disposition, yelled at me a great deal, never recognized my sensitivity, <laughs> and was pregnant every other year. It was incredible. I know my bar associates had told me, Norm, don't ever marry a woman ain't got a job. You're in deep trouble. Make sure she's working. You've now doubled your income. About midnight, that makes a lot of sense. I've been running with old Red. We've been going around together, and we decided one night we'd turn the trick, and we got married. She had a hell of a job. Things couldn't have been better. A couple of months later, I walk in the house, and the impossible scene. She says, Norm, I've been to the doctor. I'm pregnant. I have to quit my job. I've got to get off my feet. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Did you ever tell that to an alcoholic? Tell him anything you don't send me to believe. I don't want to believe that. Well, I even asked for a second opinion on this thing. What the hell? So her being a hard-headed Irish woman, why she assured me this is the way it was going to be, and I got to thinking, well, hell, that isn't all that bad. That trooper takes about nine months. We'll give her two to get on her feet. We'll get the rotten job back, and everything's going to be just like it was, huh? Uh, that's the story of the alcoholic's life. Everything's going to be just like it was. Jesus, that was 34 years ago. She ain't turned a tap since that day. No. She got herself in that shape eight times. It was unbelievable. I used to sit around the kid and I wondering how the hell could it happen? I'm not home that much either. No. That Vatican roulette, that number had come up 14 every other year. Here she go, you know. Jesus. And that rotten disposition of hers, you know, I'd be gone a couple of days and I walk in the house and, Jesus, I'm tired, I've been busy out there, I, uh, and I'm sick and a little drunky, and, and I'd like to be greeted with a little love, affection, and understanding. I don't know, around that house, hey, you walk through the door and from ten feet, she's yelling, you're drunk again, you're drunk again. I used to stand there dumbfounded, wonder how the hell does she know? <laughs> I remember a Sunday, I'd had a bad day, I'd been down to Helen's Pepper in Baldwin Park, and I'd have a conversation with a guy, we had a disagreement, and, and he opened my eye up. And I got dried blood all down the side of my face, my shirt's torn, I got one shoe on. <clears throat> and I was trying to figure out how the hell she knew I'd been drinking. I had uh, that marvelous story I was going to let her in on. She never gave the opportunity. I get drunk again. Now, what conversations? I say, who me? Like 30 guys are with you, you know? <laughs> yeah, and she say, yeah, you. And then I'd get her with that big one. i say, baby, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> and typical alcoholic, I would introduce myself. I'm old Norm, baby. That's who the hell I am. And don't you ever, ever forget that. You're trying to let her in on a hell of a deal, aren't you? Yeah. 
And then she would mimic me. It's only the way an Irish woman can do it. You know, I'm old Norm. That's who I am. <laughs> you know. That's so degrading for a high roller. Who's standing in the kitchen with his new business partner. That's a fellow you met in the bar last night. You've invited him home. And the reason he's coming home with you is, well, he don't want to go home alone either. You know. He's married to an Italian girl. There's that. Yeah. And so there you are, the blind leading the blind. Wilderbrush there in front of my best friend. I couldn't think of his name, you know. And then she'd tell me what I could do with best friend. And I said, that's what you're going to be. I'm leaving this dump. I ain't never coming back. What do you think of that? And she'd throw my clothes out. And then I'd pick all the clothes up and I'd pack them out to the car. In and out, you know. Loading up that car. That old clothes packing alcoholic. <laughs> He's a joy to that neighborhood, isn't he, huh? The neighbors are out on the porch. There he goes, yeah. You're exciting. Beats gun smoke, doesn't it? Huh? Watching the old alky out there loading up his car in and out. Honking his horn, driving off down the street. Into the sunset, never to return. To wake up a couple of days later on the front seat of your car, because that's where you're sleeping. Well, your head screwed up under the armrest and the door handle in your ear, right? Man, that car sleeping will get you to AA, I'll guarantee you. You ever wake up about midnight and you're sick as hell and you think your window's down but it's up? Yeah. And you heave right in your window. And you knock the hell out of your head. Yeah. And then you sit there and roll it down. Squish, 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 right? Yeah. And then you say to yourself, I wonder why I don't roll it down for a heave on it, I wonder, yes. These become giant problems in the life of an alcoholic. Now I gotta go home because I gotta wash the car out and on the way home I have a flat tire. But no self-respecting alcoholic would change a flat tire when he's drinking. He drives on them. Because he knows they will go away. Everything that is disagreeable in our lives will go away. We drink enough booze, it all goes away. The tire goes away. And it gets all chewed up. You're driving on the rim. We have a lot of rim drivers in AA. Did you ever see a rim driver coming home? You know, he's got the death grip on that wheel, you know. Turn that car into that driveway. Up on the lawn, opens the door, he falls out. And he lays out there for a while so the neighbors can inspect him. Oh, there's brother. Yeah. But then the poor old alcoholic gets up off of the lawn and he says to himself, I wonder if anybody saw me. <laughs> yes. Because he's deeply concerned about what people think about him. <laughs> we as alcoholics worry all the time about our reputation. We don't do anything about it, we just worry about it, isn't it? <laughs> well, I did all my boozing out there in the gym mills. I like the dark lights and the rotten music. I like the intellectual giants. I like sitting here at midnight, you know, about midnight looking in that mirror. And you you got to get that Maybelline look. <laughs> kind of wide-eyed. Uh, you, know. you devil, there you are. It's incredible how good-looking you get, isn't it? Sitting here wondering why all the dollies aren't there, you know. Good-looking, well-built, intellectual, wealthy. you got a $30 smiling Frankie Gordon suit on. 50 cents worth of chilies all down the front of you there. <clears throat> you smell bad and you can't talk. You go to the men's room and it's a pay toilet and you haven't got the money to get in. <clears throat> you got to slide under the door, huh? I bet there's some door sliders here tonight, sure. 
You slide in, and then you slide out. Because you're so drunk, you don't know. Once you get in, all you got to do is just turn the handle and walk out. But not the alcoholic. If he slides in, damn it, he'll slide out. Now, we'll show him. And we laugh. But it isn't very funny what we're going through, is it? Because we're grinding up every every loving thing we own. Means anything in our life. The inevitable. Little by little, it's gone. The wheels of alcoholism, they grind very slow, but very fine. You give it enough time, and eventually, there you are, and there's nothing. One day, the people I worked for and did business with said, that's it. The old slab sold out in 51, and an eastern firm pulled in, and they said, that's it. The next time I ever smell booze on your breath, you're through. Get out of here. And then I drove home one day. <clears throat> yeah. One more lie, one more promise. The schemer. How many times did I stand there with the tears going down saying, baby, Jesus, baby, give me a break. Don't show me how the hell I got a deal. A new priest she was telling me about. I'm going down to take another pledge, baby. That, that's what the hell I'm going to do. You think of them kids now. God. The schemer. This day she just ignored me or a drunken bum. She wasn't even sore at me. You're picking yourself to death. Hell, you'll never live to be 35 years old. You're going to have to get out of my life. I'm an erotic. The kids are neurotics. All I do anymore is sit around all night looking out through the front room window just to see your car come up the street. And the nights you never come in, I don't sleep. And the nights I don't sleep, I hear the sirens run. And I'm thinking the cops got you. Or you're dead. And I'm not going through it anymore. I call an attorney, Norm. I filed for separate maintenance. I put a restraining order against you, Norm. I'm going to divorce you. Get out of my life. I'll always love you. But you tore out all the feeling. I haven't got any feeling for you one way or another. As the alcoholic, I can't believe what I'm listening to because these things always happen to everybody else. They never happen to you and I. Drinking up booze long enough, hard enough. Be alcoholic, I guarantee you, it's going to get it. And you find yourself driving on down the street wondering, why me? Why, why? Huh? Well, you know and I know. Give it enough time and it gets it. Until the inevitable is you're standing there in the morning and you're washing your face or brushing your teeth. <clears throat> or you're sitting there in that saloon and you're looking in the mirror and you've got to hang your head because it's what you see is something you can't tolerate. Because you lost the sweetest thing you ever owned in your life, the respect of yourself as a human being, as an individual. A man walked in, he says, you've abused the privilege of owning it, <laughs> and he took it away. <clears throat> and you walk around continually with that knot in your stomach. That remorse eats you alive, and you can't face living. And it becomes a psychological second in your life when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And maybe it's the first time you come into the program, or maybe it's the tenth or the fifteenth time, but at that time you just say, I surrender. And you don't even know you say it. I'm laying on that floor in February of 1954, and for some unknown reason, I just don't want to go anymore. As I made mention, I walk in and I pick up a telephone, I get information, I get a hold of the L.A. Central Office, I call, and I get a hold of a guy over there, and his name is Johnny C. And this John was one hell of a guy. He's one of those guys you hear about in AA. He gave away what he'd found. He worked for Beans in that central office, giving away what he'd found. L.A. Central Office has made it possible for people like me to be here today. There's absolutely no question about it. That same old guy, on a Thursday night, if you went down to the old Alhambra meeting, you walked up the stairs, and up the top of the stairs, sitting on the railing, was a guy named Johnny Z. 
And he had an eye for the new guy. You walk in the meeting, he'd grab you, he'd spot you, and he'd grab you by the arm, and he'd take you in, and he'd pour you a cup of coffee, and he'd say, you're new, aren't you, son? And you're young. And keep an open mind, will you? Keep coming back. Go to a lot of meetings. Take a hole of three and a half and buy yourself a book. He says, son, if you do those things, you never have to take another drink again if you don't want to. And that's the guy that I talked to on that Sunday afternoon. That's the guy that said, do you, have a, do you think you got a drinking problem? And I told him I thought I did. And he gave me that, <clears throat> he gave me that information. He also gave me some phone numbers. He says, call these numbers. He said, these are people who live out in your area. He said, you'll get a hold of one of them, they'll be up to see you. And so I started calling, and pretty soon I got a hold of the guy. And he says, hang in, I'll be down in a couple of hours. And a couple of hours later, why, a guy walks in, and he sits down. And he starts to talk to him, and he's one of them old hard-hearted sponsors you hear about in AA. I used to think they sent him to school to be a hard-hearted sponsor, you know. And his attitude was, boy, you want this program, you've got to want it as bad as you wanted that whiskey, and you don't want it that bad. He said, you're wasting our time. You're wasting my time. You're wasting your time. He said, don't you ever forget this. You need us and we don't need you. That's the way it is. And you got to come and get it. He said, if you got a car, you drive it. If you haven't got a car, you take the bus. And if you haven't got the bus money, you walk. He said, you walk for whiskey. You can walk for the program. It's a better deal. He said, if you want me to be a sponsor. I thought he was kidding. I didn't know what the hell a sponsor was. But whatever it was, I didn't want him. That was for sure. All I can think about when he left was, all I can think about is I'm going to that meeting. He says, I'm going to be down at the Temple City meeting tonight. He says, the Temple City group meets down in Rosemead, in a town called Rosemead. I want to ask him why the hell he didn't change the name, but I didn't have the guts to ask him. He said, I'm going to be down there if you want to come on down. He says, I'll be there. He said, I'm going to show you around. I'm going to get you some numbers. I'm going to take you, I'm going to meet you at three meetings. And he says, then it's up to you, whatever you want to do. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he believed, you know, if you had a car, you were even ready. He said the last couple of years, though, they'd soften up a great deal. They'd been taking chances on guys with cars. And he said a lot of guys are making it, and they even have wristwatches, some of them, too, you know. Miserable. Well, I went down to that meeting. I went down there in spite of him. I went there in spite of myself. I don't even know why I went down. I went down there to show him I had a car, maybe. Run over him with it. I know I'd like to do that. <clears throat> God directed. The angels are on my shoulder. Call it what you will. I pulled into the parking lot there, and my God, he was waiting, and I was kind of surprised. He walked up to the car, and he opened the door, and I got out, and he put his arm around me, and we walked into the meeting, and, and God, I loved you from that day to the day he died. I love him today. Very controversial individual. Tremendous speaker. Carried the message to hundreds and thousands of people out there. God knows how many people he helped. <clears throat> but he had a very difficult time. He, he couldn't turn his will and his life over the care of anybody on an all-time basis. Chapter 6, that was for everybody else out there, but Chapter 6, he didn't have time for that. Tolerance, a God-given quality that says, let another man live his life the way he wants to. Let him work his program the way he wants to work, and not the way I want to direct it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't release anything. People resented that, and then he resented them. Then the resentment set him alive, the luxury the alcoholic can't afford, the resentments. And he made a decision, he'd drink a little. He stayed out there 12 years. He tried to come back time and time again, but his ego wouldn't let him stay. That ego, that killer of the alcoholic, because his ego kept saying, I'm the guy to carry the message to help the people. How many times I heard him say, Norm, Norm, Jesus, all the guys I sponsored, Christ, I'm, they're my sponsor now. And he'd go back out. Then he had a severe heart attack after damn near 12 years. 
And he came back to see us, and he spent a year and a half, and then he died. And I love him, because he's the guy that took the time to come to see me. He's the guy that took the time to meet me down there on that Sunday evening and bring me in, pour me a cup of coffee, and introduce me around. 70, 80 of the finest drunks ever came out of the San Gabriel Valley, I'll tell you that. An extremely wealthy group in those days. My God, we had so much money in the group in those days. We had donuts before and after the meeting. Can you believe that? Red jelly donuts, a sign of true status. Red jelly donuts. Not crummy old plain donuts or rotten cookies. Red jelly donuts. They're extremely good eating. Good for new people. My God, you, you see a new guy coming through the door and he's all green and hung out. And the red jelly donut committee would slide up on him there. You know. Nice to have you here. You're new, aren't you? Would you like a donut? <laughs> Did you ever look at a red jelly donut when you got a hangover? God, it'll make your teeth itch, I'll guarantee you. <sighs> and then the meeting began, and a man stood up there in front of the group. And he told what he was like, what happened, what he was trying to be like now. The old LA Central Avenue group put the whole meeting on. And those days, why... <clears throat> Once a month, why some outside group would come in and they put the whole meeting on. That night it was the LA Central Avenue group. And the only two speakers that I remembered their names. They, they were the short speakers. One of them was a fellow named Toke. Another name, the, the gal, her name was Willamette. She was a domestic for one of the movie people in, in Hollywood, and she'd found the program through him. He had never made the program, but she had. And then the major speaker was that guy that stood up there and said, I'm not necessary to take a drink, steal anything, or go to jail for nine and a half years. And I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Nine and a half years. He talked about how people knocked the hell out of him and how he went to jail. He'd been in over 80. 80 jails. He drank some stuff called Jamaica Ginger and he gave him the Jake leg and he crippled him up so bad and put him in a hospital for a couple of months. And everybody was hysterical because the mugger can't walk. And your sponsor said, they're going, did you hear it? Did you hear it? He can't walk. <laughs> you know, you know. What the hell's so funny about it, you know? Jake leg? I don't even know what he's talking about. I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell am I doing here? I'm underqualified. What kind of a story have I got, for God's sake? I've been in 25 rotten jails at the outside. I drank a little Vitalis and that sneaky Pete. It ain't nothing compared to that guy. And I'm too young. And then he hits you with a big one. Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference what you drink or where you drank it or how much you consumed or how old you are. It's what it's doing to you. He said, if it's tearing up any part of your life, you don't have to go any farther. And as I sat there that night, the one thing I knew, Pastor Shadow, went out that it tore the hell out of my life. I'm not so sure I want to quit drinking. No. But I'll tell you one thing for sure. I'm tired of hurting myself. And I looked at that guy that night, and I knew that I didn't have to ever, ever hurt myself again if I didn't want to. Because he hadn't. And he was AA. And he was nine and a half years. And he is an example, and that's what AA is, a program of example. So he is, speaks so loud, I cannot hear a word he says. Stood a street man out of L.A., 125th from Figueroa, maybe. Stands there that night, and he's clean, and he's sharp, and his eyes are clear, and he's dressed good, and he's, hell, he's got on a set of threads, probably cost him 100. And I'm thinking, boy, if he didn't get anything else out of AA, what a set of drapes he got. Isn't that all right? I... I just might hang around. They might have another issue going through here. Who knows? And I am really impressed with what I see. And he says, I can do it. If I can do it, you can. And I'm thinking he's talking to me, and I'm thinking, maybe. What the hell? He's, he's had a tough go. His woman had divorced him and remarried. His kids, they all hated him. Yeah. 
So one day he bought the whole package of this program, and his kids came down to see him one day because he had a change of attitude. And they learned to like him, to respect him, and then they loved him. And then if you wanted to that night, and you look around, and I didn't, but when I look around, I see the, I see the big tough guy sitting there, the 200-pound, six-foot hay shakers out of South Elmonte, Garvey Acres, Wilmar, sitting there, and the tears are screaming down their face. And they don't care. They just let them roll. With dignity, they cry for the joy of it. And the story was told. But they would laugh because they were miserable, and they cried because they were happy, and they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. And you may sit there tonight and say that's oversimplification, and it may be. But it's the only program I got. You see, I found through the laughter of the program I could clear out the wreckage of my past. Through the laughter of the program, I discovered a way that I could <clears throat> clear out any wreckage of the future. Would you walk down to see me? I hope you don't. But would you? Give me the strength to laugh a little. And through the laughter, I found a way to take a thousand pounds of guilt off my back, and I laid it down. And through the laughter, I was able to walk out and be among them. I made a transition, and I quit, quit taking, and I started, <clears throat> started to, to give a little. And taking, you see, is by nature. That's me. I'm a taker of things and a user of people. I'm a loser. All takers are losers. You're looking at one here. I had absolutely nothing in my life until I learned to have something, you must give something. <clears throat> to pick up an ashtray, a coffee cup, to put away the chairs and become the secretary of the group. Or central service, general service, or making the call on the guy that's suffering out there in the street. And we don't guarantee that you're going to find anything necessarily uh, in a material sense, but in a sense of well-being. I'll give you the world. A sense of well-being. I drank whiskey because it gave me a sense of well-being. I felt good. It gave me a buzz. I hit that plateau and I'm buzzy all over. Man, I feel good. And I roll one more just to stay even. Down the chute. And when I woke up in the morning, that buzz was gone. And in his place was, <clears throat> was that old friend of mine, remorse. What do you say, Norm? Now, check out your guts. And I drink a little whiskey. He's gone. <clears throat> but it was a temporary thing. I traded that in for the sense of well-being I've experienced here. And all I've had to do is be willing to be willing to give a little for the hell of it and want nothing in return. Helping people to help themselves to get into the day, and that's what the bottom line is all about. Because I look back now and I think, you know, there was days where I, I damn near <clears throat> turned it all back. The second meeting I went to was almost the last meeting I ever attended in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to, as I was walking out of that Tennessee meeting, my sponsor says, tomorrow night I'm going to a meeting over the Bell Street Groups in Pasadena. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, I always go to Pasadena on Monday night. I said, Pasadena's a rotten town. Why would you go there? And he says, I'm going. If you don't want to go, don't go. And I'm thinking, what the hell, you don't think I can drive that far? I'm going to go, by God. I was a little nervous, but I pulled into Pasadena. After that Bill Street group was the old-timers group. You had to be sober 10 years to read the steps. Uh, the speaker that night been in AA 137 years. He was an old-timer. The guy's name was Artie. I got to know Artie. I got to love him. When Artie spoke at these AA meetings, he always showed a picture of himself. There was a great big blown-up mugshot taken on when he was doing time in the county jail. The point did he try to get across where he says, look at me when I'm drinking, look at me now. I look at the picture, I look at Artie, I thought, you look better drunk. Yes, he did. Uh -huh. yeah. I got to get the hell out of here. Uh, yeah, ageism. The next day on the way to work, I'm coming down here on the highway. I went to Irwindale, and there's Tony's liquor store in Irwindale. The car made a left turn, it always did. 
Pulled in the Tony's liquor store and walked in and there's a Tony there. Give me a pony. There it is. Took it out of the car, broke it, and took a drag. Threw it away. From that day to this, it hasn't been necessary to take a drink. God moves in strange and mysterious ways, and no matter what you do or you don't do, it works out the way anyway. My sponsor said, you got to go to three meetings, and I didn't want him to think I couldn't get to three meetings. And so I went to the third meeting, and I met a half a dozen guys, and we were about the same age, and we started going together, running together, having meetings together, <laughs> having meetings after the meetings together, getting that in-depth inventory taken. Notice there was a lot of flakes in AA, a lot of clicks. Formed our own click to be against some other clicks out there. That's what you got to do. Oh, yeah. Run one of our guys for secretary of the largest group in the San Gabriel Valley. Politicked a little, got him in. A week after he's secretary, he joined the other cliques, the damn fool. Yeah. Put us all on coffee detail and a lot of silly things. But we all say so through it. And we woke up one day to find out that the only clicks in AA is a click, click, clicking in your head, isn't it? What do you got in AA? You got people in AA. You got people from all walks of life. You got people you wouldn't do any drinking with and people you're not going to get sober with. President, a guy told me years ago, and the guy's name was Glenn. Glenn said, Norm, let me tell you something, Sonny. There ain't a man or a woman in this program that dislike you so bad he'd ever like to see you take a drink. Do you know that? Hell, Norm, there's guys might hate your guts. But if you called him up and said, Charlie, will you come to see me? You know what, Norm? He'd be down to see you. Because he wouldn't want to see you go back out there in that jungle and get torn up in that grinder one more time. That's got to be as good a deal as you're ever going to have. And I believe it. I'd also like to be able to tell you tonight that every day is a holiday and every meal is a banquet, that there ain't no pucky on the street. But that isn't what we guaranteed about it. There'll be sobriety in the way of life, buddy. Whatever you are, you're going to be better at. You're a ditch digger. You're going to be a better ditch digger. And you're going to have to be your responsibilities. And you're going to have to stand and be counted. And I can almost guarantee you that you're going to have some things out there that aren't going to go too good. In 1962, that eight-year syndrome, the eight-year itch, I couldn't hit a lick. Everything I touched turned to pucky. God, financially, I'm in the worst condition of my life. I let my ego overrule my good sense. I'm making a deal with a guy I know it ain't going to run, but I couldn't see it. And I got a nice desire to take a drink. I got the A-Ram searched. I can taste that whiskey going down. I got a bad program moving. I'm going to meetings, and I'm hating it, and I'm hating myself. And I'm sitting down in Miami Springs one night, and the bartender says, What do you have? And I said, Give me a double. But for the grace of God, huh? That quick. But for the grace of God, he didn't find it necessary to snap that angel off my shoulder. He took me back for a minute, and let me remember the important, the essential, of who I was and where I came from. Instead of sitting around crying a poor mouth about what you didn't get or what you did get, you better remember who you are. You better remember what you have. You better say thank you very much for what you got. Yeah. You better remember everything's cut to size. The big loads, the big horses, and the small ones, the guy's named Norm. I'm trying to prepare you maybe for what's coming later on. And later on that year, I stood in front of St. Louis Hospital, and I said, Jesus Christ, why? Why me? One more time, why? And then again, I knew. It's a heavy load, but it's not as bad as it could be, I guess. I better say thank you. I better say thank you today. Thank you very much for the 28 years and a few months that you let me walk out there on the sunny side of the street, boy. Because I know guys that died and never saw 28 days. <clears throat> they died out there on the street of booze and fantasy, busted dreams and broken hearts and tears by the bucketful. 
that old Sully that brought the program to me in 1946, that after three years he went back out and he drank. And he had an internal hemorrhage and he bled to death. And he went out as hard as you can go because he had the heat on and the screws down. And the terrible part of it all was that he had to justify his existence to the bitter end. Today, you see, I haven't had to justify my existence to anybody. I'm not coming from behind. I'm doing the best I can do with the equipment that God gave me. I spent a day on the street and on the street it was clean. I'll get all done. I'll go on home. And when I get home to my house, I'm going to walk into that house. And in the house I'm living in is a woman and she's my woman. She's redheaded and she's Irish. And she's generally glad I'm coming in. Most of the time, you know. You don't get the whole thing straightened out after 34 years. It takes a little time, you know. But above all, she respects me because I'm an old man. No more, no less. And the beauty of all is that nobody has cried in my house today because the old man is drunk and tearing it up, huh? I haven't heard a kid of mine scream at me for years. I've had the opportunity to raise them for small ones, some big ones, and see them go out and get some education and go to some schools. Not that that's a big deal, but it's a big deal in my family because nobody cut it that far. I got two sons that are my business partners today. I got daughters that I take them downtown one by one by one. I bought them the first pair of high heel shoes they ever put in their feet. Hell, you know, you know, it don't sound like much unless you missed it. Then you know what I'm talking about. To say to a chicken, come on, chicken, we're going downtown, baby. And I'm going to buy you a pair of shoes because you're going dancing tonight. And we went down. And she put on the shoes. And she became a woman in front of my eyes. The chickens of my life and then became the women of my life. And they, they made me cry. They cried a little too. They cried because I'm an old man, kind of. I cried because they're women. And they attract jackasses. Yeah. Them jackasses have been coming through my house for a long time. They're coming back through again. I still got one left of the house. She's a caboose. She's 17. And they're coming back through. About three months ago, one comes through that you wouldn't have believed. I couldn't believe myself. He's the worst I'd ever seen. And I've seen a lot of bad ones. Maybe I'm getting older. He walked to my house. He had his hat on. I said, for Christ's sake, boys, your head cold. I want to tell you something. When I was stealing, breaking into houses, I took my hat off, for God's sake. Yeah. And my daughter says, I'm embarrassed. I says, baby, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you what I told your sisters. Because I'm a member, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been sober 28 years. You never had to say that's your drunken father on the kitchen floor. You never said that, baby. And I have participated in your life. You've invited me to the music center. I go, I see you dance, huh? To your jazz concerts, and I see you. To your football games, and I get splinters in my butt. And I have been a participant in the things that you want to do, that you enjoy. Which gives me the uh, privilege to say 